Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 315 with my guest Jenny R. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Madison Reed offers salon quality hair coloring results that you can achieve right from your home. We gave listener Kat a free kit and she loved it. And it is, in her words, uh, made her now a fan of the podcast and Madison Reed. So if you're looking for a fresh take on at-home hair color, find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit using promo code HAPPY. That's madison-reed.com and promo code HAPPY. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. I'm barely a human being. This is not a doctor's office. This is more like a waiting room. That does not suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter handle you can follow us at. Hey, people in Oakland, we are coming to do two live shows in the Bay Area on February 22nd and 23rd. Um, so for more information, uh, and I think that's a, those are weekdays, I know. I can't remember if it's Tuesday, Wednesday, or Wednesday, Thursday, but uh, February 22 and 23. And uh, for more information, go to East Bay Express dot com slash mental i'll put the uh that link on our website um for this episode um so i've been i I told you guys that we have um a new sponsor uh for online therapy uh, betterhelp uh, dot com and um i have been using one of their therapists for uh, a couple of months now and uh really really like her and some of the stuff that we have been dealing with lately, um, I kind of thought that that I, I wouldn't say that I was over it, but um, 
she's, she's helping me see, uh, my thought patterns and how black and white my thinking can be when I project into the future, how like I exaggerate things in my head. And, um, what I like about her is that she helped me see this, but she did it in a really kind of gentle, compassionate way. Um, so that I discovered it myself. She didn't have to tell me. As I began to tell her what my fears are about the future, I could hear how ridiculous they were once I had to write them out or, you know, say them out loud. Um, so it's going well. It's going well. It's it's funny. Every time I think, eh, I don't need any more therapy, I have a therapy session. I'm like, I need more therapy. But uh, it's going well. So if you guys are interested in uh, online therapy, uh, check out betterhelp.com. Um, complete their questionnaire. Get matched with a betterhelp.com counselor and experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. Um, the website for it is betterhelp.com slash mental. And, um, yeah, you can, and you can, uh, correspond with your counselor, uh, either through, uh, messages, through live texting, um, type live text chat, um, by phone or by video. So that's a good deal. Let's read a couple of surveys, um, before we get to the interview with, with Jenny R. And Jenny's Jenny's uh, episode was recorded, I want to say, two years ago, I think. Um, and I have an update for you at the end of the interview. This is, uh, these are all struggle in a sentence surveys. This was filled about, out by uh, Who Am I? Uh, and they write about their, um, uh, Who Am I is a gender. And they write about their borderline personality uh, disorder. Uh, considering being run over by a bus because I talked to someone and they didn't reply. My God. Yeah, that that's up there with the uh, nobody returning your text and you just are racking your brain trying to think, what did I do to make them hate me? Snapshot from their life. When I was younger, I often felt physically empty and like I was floating. Uh, I had a habit of piling all my textbooks in my backpack and putting it on my body to ease numbness and anxiety that would go away if I put something heavy on me. I always had to wear my heaviest sweaters and boots because without them, I felt anxious and like I would float away. You know what's funny? Uh, Jen Kirkman described that in uh, one of the very first fear-offs that we ever did. She talked about her fear of uh, of floating away. Uh, this is filled out by No Bitch Put on Chapstick, and she writes about her depression. My lips are chapped. I should kill myself. About her anxiety. Having to sit on the toilet while taking an online exam because I am literally shitting my pants an hour before meeting with a friend. Thank you for sharing that. Um, loser McLoserface, who I think might be engaged to uh, Bodie McBoatface. Little Tip of the hat to our uh, friends in the UK. Uh, he writes about his bulimia. There's a button that makes people love me in the back of my throat. Snapshot from his life. I told my dad that I wanted him to say he loved me. He only said, I know. Fuck, that is heartbreaking. And then he writes, this fucker thinks he can Han Solo his way out of being a father. 
um, Christy uh, deals with depression, anxiety, bulimia, um, and a snapshot from her life. The first time I attempted suicide, I was eight. I took a bunch of Benadryl, ibuprofen, and Flintstones vitamins. Yes, a whole bottle of Flintstones. I was eight, so I get a pass on that one. I woke up two days later with the worst hangover. No one had noticed I had been missing. Perhaps that's why I wanted to die in the first place. Ground Turkey Taco shares a snapshot uh, from his anger issues. And uh, he also has... um, Oh, I thought he had borderline personality. No, he has a um, bipolar. And a snapshot from his life. When in high school, uh, I was on the basketball team. I received a technical foul during a game, and my coach told me to cool off in the locker room. I was so angry, I ripped the security steel door off its hinges and shattered the bulletproof glass. My temper is amazing. Any comments to make the podcast better? I love you. Go fuck yourself. I accept both of those. I, you know, kind of like a place that takes Visa and MasterCard. I take I love you and I take go fuck yourself. Uh, Amy on the wall writes uh, about her trichotillomania. Remember that one sublime hair pull from when you were a teenager? I need to find a hair that feels like that again. Thank you for that. Uh, and then Barefoot Wonder. Uh, this is this is a uh, snapshot from uh, their life. They deal with uh, anxiety, or she deals with anxiety, uh, depression, uh, borderline personality, and uh, some gastrointestinal issues. And she writes, I'm at the breakfast table, and it's the morning of my first day at a new job. I never show up to the office, and I'm trying to anticipate how my mom will react when she comes home and discovers that all my interviewing and job searching was for nothing. I keep getting calls from the office, and I delete their voicemails without ever listening to them. I delete their emails, too. I fantasize about erasing myself just as easily. I worry that my mom will finally throw me out, and I'll be forced to live out of my car since I'm afraid to go to a homeless shelter. The thought is almost appealing. I deserve to suffer for forcing my mom through this illness with me. Maybe I could have spared her and fought my fears and self-doubt, but I didn't. I worry that my life will just be an endless cycle of this, getting a, getting a grandiose plan for how I can fight my fears, then panicking and destroying it all, tumbling farther into a hole of self-hate and hopelessness. I just want to give you a hug. And, um, you know, you just heard me talking about me struggling with, with black and white thinking. Um, it sounds like from all the surveys and people I've talked to that have uh, borderline personality disorder, that is another thing that they struggle with. Um, so sending you some love. And, and I have to read you this. Uh, her, dis- her description uh, of depression, imagine the most disappointing news you've ever gotten. And now imagine you have to hear it every day when you wake up. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting, different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach-clutching despair. 
ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Akazai in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Jenny R., who is a listener. Uh, Jenny R., where where to begin? So that the broad strokes, um, possible borderline personality disorder, yes. um, disordered eating, yes. anxiety. Yes. Give me some snapshots of of just what the fuck. Um, the... Probably the worst snapshot is... And I'm going to have you move into the mic just a little bit. I'll actually move it towards you. Okay. Yeah. It, life is hard. Life is hard for, for everyone. Stressful. Too busy. All of that. Um, but my coping mechanism became food. So... The... Um, hold on one second. The uh, withholding of food or the binging of food or the purging? First, the withholding of food, which I was very successful at for, um, let's say, two years until, you know, the hunger desire got so, so strong. I just I completely went the other way, which I think is normal for for anorexics a lot. But I um, if you're going to give up the control, let's give it up completely. Right. Well, there's been studies of um, people that were prisoners at war and when they came home. Um, stashing food under their bed, not knowing what they were doing because they had been starving and so malnourished mm -hmm. that they um, just completely lost control the other way and had super, you know, strange behaviors. But I wasn't able to catch myself in time. So um, what I started to say was that, you know, people end up, you know, just stressed out to the limit. And I don't know what normal people do, but I ended up just even, you know, when I was married, getting in my car, taking off for hours and just going through, you know, five to seven um, fast food places ordering, I mean, more food that can fit in anyone's stomach again and again and again and again and again, knowing that other people were coping differently, um, knowing that other people had different um, coping mechanisms than I, and I couldn't find them. And um, being a mom, being married, having what, a normal job. Back back up. Knowing mm -hmm. other people had different coping mechanisms and you couldn't find them. You couldn't find the coping, the coping mechanisms. mechanisms. Okay. So. Uh, I see. Even though therapy. Quick, yeah. Quick question. Mm -hmm. At what age did the uh, disordered eating start? The withholding of food? Second. The summer after second the second grade. year of college. No, no, no. Not second grade. Mm. I was good in second grade. You well, were, besides you were the a, family I was You were a wunderkind. <laughs> you were counting calories before you could count. Actually, this just no. looks like a lot of food. <laughs> no, but thanks for making it funny. Yeah. Um, second year of college. Second year of college. Um, it, my mom was a model. She was, you know, very, very, very skinny. I had always been very, very skinny. And about the second year of college, I sort of became almost normal but just couldn't handle it so instant um you know complete restricting like i'm just gonna eat fruit had when you uh, gained the weight and became not rail thin in a healthy way were there any comments or was it all in your perception of yourself i got a lot more attention from 
boys or men or whatever you want to call college males, um, which you'd think that I would have liked. And as much as I liked it, it made me extremely uncomfortable. But mostly looking in the mirror, it was like a self-identity crisis of, of some sorts. And the second that I started restricting food, like like minute one I could feel it take the edge off of anything that was going on with me any stress any feeling and I got so addicted so fast to that feeling but starving yourself isn't something you can maintain and um so bulimia became this like complete um you know it's like it's like coating all your feelings in like syrup You know what I mean? It's just like whatever is going on, stress, negativity, bad feeling, fight with your boyfriend, just coating it all in like this syrup, sugar, just. um, So I think that sort of when I first maybe have the first thoughts about it, you know, that's like the pre binge pre thinking. Um, But then during it, it's like it's like a biochemical like thing happening. Um, Is it a high? Uh, it's definitely a high during, and then it's almost like the purging is like a, like the low, like the, um, after the purge or during the purge afterwards. So it's like, it's I've heard like, people say they get high immediately after the purge and then it's a crash or for you, is it right after the purge? It's immediate crash, pretty immediate, immediate crash, but something you said, so, um, I did a 12-step program for a long time that I just sort of didn't hit it for me. And then um, when I ended up going to a different 12-step program, it's like I don't relate with with food people who do this food stuff because of mm-hmm. their weight. Because it's it quickly became not about that. I relate with like heroin addicts, you know, like needle in your vein put the pause button on all your feelings in life and just just escape you know and um so it's like it it ended up giving me a sense of control over every feeling i ever felt if that makes sense and totally avoiding like what you said perfect sense and i'm so glad you said that because i always say to people it's not about the substance it's about the feelings that we're running from and the coping mechanisms that we i mean one of the reasons why i go to two different 12-step programs is there's a specificity to each one, but I would feel completely comfortable going to uh, a 12-step program for food because the feelings are still the same that exactly. people are sharing about. They may be saying, you know, I ate a pizza and I feel like a piece of shit or, or whatever, but I would just say, okay, yeah, last Friday I played video games for 12 hours and yeah, I'm feeling like a lazy piece of shit. The only thing I find that's different is... um in the food program, you can talk about food the rest of your life and never have to talk about your feelings. But when you have to give up your substance to sort of be a full-fledged member, then you're forced to talk about what's oh, going on. Oh, I never thought about that. So, unfortunately, when you deal with food, they say it's like, you know, you take the tiger for a walk three times a day. Yeah. You know, um, you, you have to keep dealing with the food, so it's hard not to focus on the food when it's not about the food. You know what I mean? Um, it's about sense. what's underneath it and why can't I, as an adult female, you know, cope with all the same stresses that everyone else does, you know, mostly because I haven't, mostly because I haven't since, you know, I was 
19 in college, I chose to bail on feelings and decisions and life and maintain this sort of on the edge functional life. What were the feelings when you would, let's say your food was clean. Is that an okay word for what I've heard people mm -hmm. say? My Mm -hmm. food's been clean, meaning Mm -hmm. that they're not under eating or overeating. Right. And something would stress you out. And you would think to yourself, I'm going to go to five drive throughs right. and then purge it all. When that thought would occur to you, what would you think and feel as that thought would hit you as a, as a possibility that, yes, I'm going to do that tonight? Describe in your body and in your mind what you, what you would experience when that thought pops into your head. Let's do this. Um, so it's kind of like, um, it's a mental blank spot. It's like, it owns me the first second it, um, there is no other truth. That is truth. Like it, um, like, you know, this is going to get me out of this, even though I thought that last time and then I woke up the next morning and it didn't, it always will convince me. It always Um, will convince me or I might play tricks like it'll just be a small thing this time or there's like a way I can skirt like do a little controlled right you know any version of to make it less or to be home faster or um, you know I have a really strong memory of um, when I was married I would um, I was working from home and then I would sort of save up errands to do at night and then I would cook dinner and then I'd be like, oh, I have to like return this thing to Target and I have to go to Pottery Barn and I would just kind of run around town doing these errands and binging and, you know, purging in gas stations. And um, I, I thought it was about my marriage. And when that marriage ended and I was back on my own and I was still doing the same behavior and I had to stop and say, holy shit, it wasn't about him. Not that I'm supposed to be married with him or I'm sad about that in any way, but that was the first time I got that, like, it's not even about one specific thing. It's just this behavior that was so easy to pin on, blame on something. It's it's not. You can't blame any person, place, or thing for your addiction. Right. It it may be added to the pile of whatever it is and and we don't know what what causes addictions you know i personally believe that it's it's genetic and then a switch kind of gets flipped by environment just like mental illness um so my mom um was an alcoholic she got a drunk driving arrest and then sober when i was in sixth grade um so you remember her being drunk before then I very much, very much. And when you said that, um, when the switch is flipped, I, you know, I have no interest in alcohol. I can take a sip and put it down, but I know this is how genetically I was past that, the addict gene. But, um, my mom, um, is a rager. I'm an only child. So what I remember most distinctly is I loved family dinners together because our family was so busy and we'd all sit at the table together and, um, the food memory is my just mom. Just the three of you? Just the three of us. Mm-hmm. My, um, the food memory is that my mom would eat like a big bowl of lettuce only. And my dad would have, let's say, a steak and baked potato. He was a runner. And then I was sitting in the middle of the table. And I just remember 
who knows, I probably had some of what my dad was eating and some of what my mom was eating, but I remember like thinking girls eat this and boys eat this. So why is she feeding me that? Like I, I didn't understand. Um, but she would start drinking with dinner. She only drank at night. She was a pretty controlled alcoholic, but the, um, the arguments would start, you know, once two glasses were down her, two glasses of wine, the arguments would start. My dad's very passive. And um, as soon as the dishes started getting cleaned, I would go to do my homework and it would just get louder and louder and louder and louder. And I'd get more and more and more uncomfortable. And I would always feel it in my stomach, just extreme fear that they were going to get, you know, divorced or that she was going to leave or who was I going to live with? That this misery was going to be shattered. <laughs> right? The, the fears, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that would have been better. And then inevitably she would peel out of the driveway. And then um, my dad, God bless him, would never, I always wanted him just to come to my room and sort of acknowledge what was going on. Hey, are you okay? Did you hear that? And it's like, as soon as she left, he was sort of embarrassed or I don't know. And just, then it was just done. Like I was going to put myself to bed, like j just, um, so I just remember, um, fear, just a lot of fear, anger and fear from the drinking, her anger and then my fear and then her leaving. Have you seen the documentary Running From Crazy by Mariel Hemingway? No one I should, and I oh love God. her and have met her, so. You will okay. see your story okay. on film. Okay. That was exactly what her parents did every night. Her mom didn't drink during the day. Actually, both her parents were drinkers, but um, it would start with drinking the wine while cooking, and her mom would be really happy at first, and then she would get belligerent, and she and her father would argue and it was the same and she had to to be in between it but there's way more to her story than that there's <laughs> they have a complicated family that's a, that <laughs> is an understatement yeah you know that is an understatement um and and even if you don't relate to that anybody listening go watch that documentary running from crazy it uh oh my god i fucking sobbed like a a baby when I when I saw it. I um, love documentaries and I, I need yeah. some downtime, so time uh, to watch that. Email me and I will send you a list of about sixty okay. Okay, great. that I've watched that I really enjoy. Um so it just wasn't safe to 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 be a kid. There were there was like uh your emotions were just kind of bouncing right back at you that nobody sounds like any nobody feeling you. Exactly. And then at the time she got sober, so she she had been a flight attendant and then she'd stop being a flight attendant. And when she got sober, she went back to being a flight attendant. So exactly like myself, she doesn't deal with um, fatigue well. So she's sober and now she's flying internationally and um, she would come home so exhausted that, it, you know, drinking obviously created an unsafe environment, like you just said. And now she's coming home so tired that there that created an unsafe environment. She was like a ticking time bomb of like she'd walk in the house and either she was going to tell me how much she missed me or she was going to explode because there was like one bowl in the sink um, or go to bed for four days. But um didn't help that all she was eating was salad either, <laughs> you know, exactly. Exactly. So, and, yeah, she And, and she was didn't she eat getting well. help for her drinking or was she just white knuckling it? Nope. She went to a 12 step program and got sober just immediately, but um, 
more of a dry drunk. Yeah, it doesn't sound like somebody doing the the self exploration that good support groups are known for. She did much later, but oh, not good, then. Good. Yeah. Um. And that's why it pisses me off when people say, oh, you know, that support group doesn't work that, you know, this person I know went to it. Yeah, but that's like saying, you know, that that person I know had a job at, at uh, you know, that restaurant and they got fired from it or, or whatever. It's like, well, what's their part? Did they did they give it their best shot? Did they? Anyway, go ahead. So um, the other sort of distinct thing was. Um, uh, you know, throughout either drinking or later being sober, um, I hesitate to say verbal abuse because if she were to hear this, I'd I'd feel bad about that because we remember it so differently. But um, it felt like verbal it abuse. It felt like verbal abuse. Just lots of you know, lots of weird public humiliation. Like she'd get so upset with me, like. She took me shop. We she took me shopping with her on her shopping trips a lot. I was more of a tomboy. She was a model um, before and during being a flight attendant, and she um, just lots of. She'd get upset and scream at me. I remember a specific time on um, Rodeo Boulevard in Beverly Hills, just just or uh, Rodeo Drive, screaming at the top of her lungs that she wished I was never born or she hated me, just stuff a kid should never hear. And I don't even remember even really believing it other than I was so, so embarrassed. And definitely no, you know, no other abuse of any kind. Um, if you're going to yell that at your kid, that's the best place to do it, though, because it just blends in. <laughs> hey, that's, that's good, you know? I grew up very far away from there um, in the country where it would have really stuck out, so maybe it was safer <laughs> that she did it there. Um, was your family wealthy? My family was wealthy, yeah. and um, that's definitely part of my sort of adult story is that um, they never said no to me. and Because um, that's how they loved you, right? Oh, that's definitely how they loved me, and it was a, you know, transitioning to, you know, having an eating disorder definitely um, makes you immature emotionally if you lean on that. Um, you don't, you know, I didn't learn to cope with feelings or, you know, to really grow up because I was leaning on that all through college, you know, being 95 pounds, my um, sophomore and junior year of college, I missed out on a lot anyways. And then, um, you know, transitioning to real life where I had to go out and get a job. And I remember uh, um, I graduated and I had a um, degree, at, I mean, an interview at a big agency in LA. And they said it's going to be $400 a week before taxes. And I was like, are you kidding? Who would take that job? Bye. And um, that was, you know, that was the only job offer I got. And I was like, screw this. Like, I'm going back to school. Hey, dad, will you pay for me, you know, to go back to school and my rent and, you know, some allowance? Sure. Okay. So then I did that for another three years. And um, what'd you study? Uh, acupuncture. And is that what you do now? No, I quit. Okay. I quit um, because I didn't really want to be in school. I just wanted a, you know, sort of safety plan. So you just wanted to not be in the real world. I just did not want to be in the real world. The real world was way too hard. And I wasn't willing to kind of struggle until I wasn't going to be able to buy the kind of clothes that they bought me or, you know, live anywhere near the same lifestyle because there, there was just this like instant sort of cutoff. So I ended up dropping out of school, starting a business and getting married all at the same time. So I literally went from 
um, you know, their help to like no responsibility to right no growing up just leaning constantly Why didn't you pump out a couple of kids while you were at it i pumped out one kid did you yeah i did i pumped out one kid we had a long engagement i got pregnant and how then far I married did, him. how far out did you pump him out <laughs> did he come out in an arc you know you you know that you're you've been uh, kegling when you can get the kid to shoot out in an arc it was actually a c-section yeah so there was no shooting involved did he come out with a top hat on <laughs> take a little bow <laughs> no um and as much as i was still doing the behavior my consciousness was changing and um there's a story that ties in but um like being in program and having those people understand you in this different way where they don't they understand and they have complete empathy and compassion because they've done it too and they get it too he was such a normie um that it was hard to even put words to what I what I needed. Um, you know, the story I was going to say is that even having him kind of, what's the word, have admiration for my work that, you know, I ended up doing. Um, the first time your that... Per- your personal work, meaning the, the... No, sorry, my career work. Oh, career work, okay. Um, my photography, um, having outside people comment on my work, um, you know, with words of admiration and wow. And then realizing that like he was never looking at my work. That was the first time that I understood kind of that. Um, what do you need in a relationship? What fills you? What makes you feel loved? What attract, what, what attracted him to you? Um, Oh, that was ages ago. I was young and he was cute and it was just... um, It was a physical thing. It was a completely physical thing that wore off before we got married, but then I I got pregnant. But that was such a wonderful experience to, to kind of feel that and to be able to... I mean, I'm so grateful to be divorced because you can choose so much more consciously the second time. How awesome would that have been for you guys to have put that in your wedding invitation oh no we were physically attracted at first but now i'm pregnant save <laughs> save july 27th <laughs> this is only infatuation but i have to marry him or i'm screwed <laughs> right <laughs> yeah that was it was very interesting going out and um and dating after that because i was so wary of the infatuation that wears off and i was so curious to see what it would feel like when I knew that at some point infatuation would wear off and there'd be something underneath it. And the, I the real them. Right. And I and I was kind of waiting for that. And um I ended up finding that. And um it was just it's it's such a different experience when you've been married before. And it's almost scary that my significant other hasn't been married because I'm like, you know, well, I guess I can't, you know, be a hundred percent how he feels versus how I feel, but it's really just cool to feel this really solid, stable, forever thing under the infatuation. And, you know, it's not as crazy as infatuation, thank God, but I would run from that infatuation feeling. You know, I did. I wanted the second time to be a, a really practical, like, I love you for these 10 reasons. You feed me for the in these 10 ways. Really practical. Um, so, so... Give me the things that were important to you in a mate before you started going to support groups and the things that are important to you in a mate now. 
and with the most important ones towards the top? Well, it sounds funny, but nobody ever told me what, you know, was important. So I just, it was hormones, infatuation, hormones, just I'm attracted to you and you don't drive me crazy and I kind of feel like hanging out with you. So let's date for two years. That was all that went through my head. And then um, after that, it was definitely... Um, would, there, would, would there have been any red flags that would make you run away from anybody? Or would oh. they have to be a fucking psycho for you to go, oh, this clearly isn't isn't going to work? No, sure. I mean, of course, they had to be nice and smart and sort of, you know, um, <laughs> I someone I vibed with. But it, it really was based on, like, infatuation, like... Recovery really, number one, um, taught me to listen to my needs, to even know I had needs, and to be comfortable having needs. I baseline don't want to have needs at all uh, from anyone or anything. And so as soon as I started evaluating, you know, those needs, um, I realized that kind of shared activities is really important to me. I'm super active um, and finding someone that did some or one of those sports with me. What are your sports? Um, triathlons, so swimming, biking, running, and then uh, rock climbing. That's sort of that, I think admiration's a fair word, but that this other person appreciates my, you know, what I'm doing, whether it's my art or, you know, doesn't think that my work is stupid or that um, what I have to say isn't valuable. Um, stability is really important to me so I stress out super bad so like when this shit hits the fan I want to know that I can freak out and the other person is going to hold my hand and gonna be like babe it's okay how do you freak out um, I just you know when I get overwhelmed I just I feel like I can't handle like anything at all and just like I'm not going to make it to tomorrow, not knowing how I'm going to handle it at do you, all. Do you at least wait until your hair is in curlers so it's more stereotypical? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, Was that you just yes-anding or is that the truth? <laughs> I, I don't put my hair in curlers, so I had to make up an answer. All right. Okay. Thank you. Do people still put their hair in curlers? Um, so there's something you can do where you roll your hair up in a sock. Uh-huh. And you leave it all night and it's kind of like curlers, yeah. which I don't do either. But I think people um, use flat irons to curl their hair. Okay. Like that's the... There's an Asian girl on YouTube who teaches you like everything you want to do with your hair. I've seen her before because I don't do much with my hair. Uh-huh. And if you want your hair, <laughs> if you want your hair super flat, do you roll it up in a, in a sock that's been jizzed in so that it's... it's <laughs> my hair is flat naturally. So, I don't, I don't know. I haven't tried that. How uncomfortable am I making you right now? <laughs> you're not. You're not. Right. It's really hot in here by by it, itself. It is. The uh, the place where we record is, uh, it's a law office building, and I got so tired of the noise across the hall taping during the day that I now tape on off hours, and I guess I'm finding out that they don't run the air conditioning uh, at night and on the weekends here. Um one quick question, okay. just because I, I love rock climbing. Okay. What what have you climbed a five ten or a five ten A? I can do twelves, Paul. Five twelve. I can do twelve. Are you shitting me? <laughs> five ten's not that hard. A five ten's not that hard. No. No. If you started um, going to the gym, um, in maybe a, I was in thinking a five eleven. In a few months, you could do a five ten. 
Oh, you know what? I think I did do a 510. I was thinking okay, 511. Good. Okay, good. But 512? 512A? B? I think a B is the hardest thing I've done. That's serious. You're a serious rock climber. I'm serious. I like it a lot. You know, honest, on, on a really non-joking level, um, I taught yoga for a lot of years because I was, you know, still, you know, that was part of my recovery. Getting in my body, getting quiet, you know, meditation, all of that. But after you do yoga for enough years, you can totally obsess and freak out and think about non-related things while you're in a handstand. So I quit yoga and started rock climbing to find a new thing that shut my brain off. And you throw in that you might fall and die and your brain kind of shuts off. And I just look at the next hold and how I'm going to get there. So the focus is unbelievable some of the some of the deepest peace and focus i've ever felt was uh, i learned uh glacier climbing in uh in the pacific northwest and the one of the parts of the of the glacier course was um you had to learn how to um first of all self-arrest which means when you're as you know when you're What's that? Ice, ice axe. axe. Yes, you jam your ice axe into the into the ground, and then the other thing you had to learn how to do was how to pull uh, when you rope together with a friend, and one of you falls into a crevasse. You can't just with your pure strength pull that person up from from that thing. What you have to do is you have to put your ice axe in, and then you have to set up a system of like pulleys and winches to get this person up. And so when you learn how to do this. What you do is you and the other person are roped in together at the waist. One person who's going to stay up on the ground turns their back to the crevasse and the other person jumps into the crevasse and pulls the other person off their feet and they have to dig their axe in and then set up the system of pulleys to winch the other person up out of the crevasse i was the first person in the group that had to trust that this was going to work and just jump into this 200 foot crevasse now there were there were guides there that obviously had set up a, a, a safety system so i was pretty sure i i wasn't they weren't going to let me fall to my death but you don't know that when you're standing on the edge of this gaping thing and I jumped over it and sure enough they you know this guy set you know stopped me from falling all the way to the bottom and I was just in this this beautiful crevasse where it was like blue all the all the the ice was blue and I tell you I didn't worry about anything that happened in my life I wasn't tripping out about the future and it was just the most peaceful why is it that when we, I suppose because we have to focus to minimize the risk of being hurt, that it forces us to be present. Is that a, is that a fair uh, assessment? Yeah, that makes sense. Or, uh, you know, that's, it's like when you're going up and you the next hold is what's going to keep you from falling. It's like every cell in your being doesn't want to fall so you're just focusing on you know mentally and physically what i have to do to get to that to that next hold i I hate falling um sort of a different experience if you're in you're overwhelmed by natural beauty i think like you were describing give me an example of where you're going for a hold that you've failed before you know something that's probably past vertical and your arms are starting to burn what's the what is what 
is going through your head and your body as you're trying to climb this route that you've never been able to tackle before or you're not sure you're going to be able to, to, to do it. Even even technical stuff that you're thinking to yourself, share, share some of that with us. I think that not much goes through my head at that point. Um, it's such a time game. You know, you can't hang on and think about it. So I usually just go for it. And then I'd say 50% of the time I surprise myself. And even though I was completely taxed, I make it. And 50% of the time I was completely taxed and I, you know, can't grip it. You just, mm-hmm. your forearms are burnt and you just literally can't, can't grip anymore. Um, but it's, it's interesting how I always say like, so it's intellect, it's instinctual more than intellectual I think for so. you in, in cracking uh, a route. They call them uh, for our listeners, they call them problems, yeah. which I think is such an accurate thing because the, a route could be completely inaccessible you you could be stymied by it and then you suddenly realize oh if i put my left foot right. on this one right. instead of my right foot right then that opens up this one over here which opens up that one over there which makes this other one reachable where in the past and it's it's kind of physical chess and and that's a good way to put it in some way i watch people do it you know stand on the ground and look at the problem and kind of move their hands like they're going to see it. I can't do that. I just have to start it and I figure it out as I, as I go up. But I think I'd be a much better climber if I could plan and see it. I just I can't see it till I'm on top of it. So I have to make quick decisions. But I, you know, if I have a really stressful day, um, if I go for a long run or something, that kind of like I can think about work the whole time. But it, you know, the endorphins kind of like kind of melt over work take the edge off versus climbing is different because it's just it's a break from real life in a very similar way actually that like binging would be it just pause button cell phones over there just go yeah it's that's interesting that that there is a difference between stuff that distracts us and stuff that consumes us right and I'd never realized the difference between that, that that I've always been drawn to the things that consume me. But the more I recover, the more I try to be aware that that's not necessarily a good answer. It can feel like um, a break, but in some ways it's running. What's the difference for that's you between between a break and running? Well, I was just, so my, uh, my son is gone for two weeks. How old is he? He's 11. Mm-hmm. And he went with his dad to visit um, his other side grandparents. And it's funny how my first instinct is to, like, do more ocean swimming, go climbing more, like, like fill in all this time with, like, fun and activity and, you know, consuming activities. And... To, you know, he's been gone a few days and um, I have, a you know, I was coming here tonight and then Wednesday I, I have this activity thing going on. And so tomorrow, we, I never climb on Tuesday nights and I was going to climb on Tuesday night and I was driving here going, no, you're not allowed to climb on Tuesday night. You need to be at home with the cat, like chilling. 
So um, I think I still, um, that's still kind of murky water for me. And um, to just be, to, to be okay. It's, to it's just really be. hard to just be. And I remember early on um, dating people and I um, went on a few dates with a man who broke up with me by saying, or didn't break up with me, but said he didn't want to get go out again. He said, you are a doer. You're way too much of a doer. I need a beer. And I suggest you learn to meditate and become a beer. I was like, oh, shit. Did that hurt? It did hurt. Did you say anything to him? No, no, no. I, I mean, I knew it was the reality and it, we'd yeah. only gone on three dates, but that man had me pegged. And um, so more what I do is just know I don't need to do this activity any more than two days a week. And I do need to rest more mm-hmm. and just set boundaries with myself because I'm not, I'm so aware in so many ways, but when it comes to things like rest and relaxing, it doesn't feel good until I completely burn out. You know, I, I, as you're sharing that, I'm thinking, why is stillness so scary for some of us? And I was just flashing back to that, you know, that image of you as that kid in that tense silence in your house. And it's like, of course, stillness was scary. You know, that silence was awful. This is going to make me sound really crazy. Not that, you know, it's been mild so far, but I remember, um, I don't know how old I was. Um, and by silence, I meant that the issue not being discussed. Obviously, your parents were arguing, but the it, your dad not coming in and saying, hey, what you heard was, you know, probably kind of scary. That reminds me of a whole different story. But I, I just remember what I first thought you meant was actual stillness. And those times when they would fight and then it would get quiet and no one would come into my room. I remember distinctly one really fucked up coping mechanism I had was to um, sit on the floor on my knees and just like bash my forehead into the ground until like my head was numb, which, you know, a really immature way to, um, you know, numb out feelings. I, I literally did not know what else to do. And it's just, it's really interesting to me that other kids go through horrible stuff and they, I just... Someone told me once, um, like, I missed the handbook to life, someone in program. Like, some of us just miss the handbook to life, and we need to, like, buy this, like, book for $15 or whatever and, like, relearn how to fucking live, you know? But my solution to my parents fighting and being scared was to smash my head in the floor. Or even earlier than that, my mom has told me when I was, like, really little, two or three, and I didn't want to go the same direction that they were going, like, walking down the beach, I just had the ability to fall over straight backward like a board and just like like just to get attention and make them do what i wanted like i mean that was like way before they fucked me up so i I don't know um but uh stillness is very hard for me even to this day like very hard What, what what do you think it is is it because we're waiting for the other shoe to drop i think it's um we feel like the world's passing us by I've had both experiences. I think um, when I was single and there'd be like a weekend with not much going on, um, I would feel like the world was passing me by and like, why was everyone else doing? I had this idea everyone else is doing something but me. But I think my problem with stillness is like a relationship with myself 
issue. And I'm very blessed to have my best friend on this planet be like an official normie. And I learned so much through You're her. You're meaning your partner? No, no. Oh, okay. My best friend. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, no, my partner is pretty much as fucked up as I am. Yeah. He, he'll be the next one on your show. Is he in any kind of uh, support group stuff? No, but I, I push pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, therapy, um, therapy, books, things like that, but pretty resistant to, you know, everyone, something works for everyone. He's, he's tried it, not for him. Yeah. Um, but my, um, my best friend, she's just a normie. And it's just interesting to me to watch, like, we have kind of parallel lives. And she's had some really difficult stuff happen to her at the same time I have. And, like, the way she copes, like, we both are deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And she just, like, sits in it. And that allows her to, like, to learn something and to grow. And, you know, anything you read, like, you know, Buddhism 101, like, you know, feel it let it pass move on like i can't seem to be able to do it's so scary that. when when the feelings are intense it's so scary to not reach for the ipad or a book or turn on the tv and any just, of that would be even better than the harsher stuff you know just you know work exercise um you know any of that um, I read a... Especially when some of that stuff has been praised by our culture and is, in reality, a good thing in moderation. Right. There is a um, world champion um, female triathlete who wrote a book. She was, um, a, you know, serious bulimic. And she... Triathlons kind of replaced that for her, and she said, "I'm going to have an addiction, and this is a healthier one." And I feel the same way about exercise. You know, I don't. An, an addiction to me is something that's dysfunctional and like interrupts your life. And exercise is not that to me. But, um, in a way, sometimes I feel that like triathlon is an excuse to spend a lot of time doing something compulsive and end up super in shape and. Um, it takes a lot of time, but I, I will say for someone not being very athletic growing up, it is a huge source of self-esteem and goal setting and good time by myself. And it has a lot of really, really good things. I can't even imagine what doing a, a triathlon is, is like, you know, the on the odd day that I run four miles i think how the fuck does somebody make it five miles let alone 26 let alone swimming and biking after that i, I know you work up to it but how the fuck do you even work up to it it's well i think that's a really amazing thing or probably the thing i like most about it is it seems so impossible and then you do this training and the training's the hard part because by race day like the race isn't that big a deal but how do you get up when you know you got to run 12 miles that day i mean i just i suppose your energy is is different than somebody who asks you how the fuck do you wake up and run 12 miles that day i think that triathletes are all crazy type a personalities is what we have I to think. Be, have to be moving to, Who have, to feel okay yeah so in many that's ways that's your way of relaxing i i think my best my best ability to relax is after a really hard workout um i may in a it just sounds sad but i feel like i deserve it and then it feels really good and it's so nice to like want time in my own yes. house 
Uh, I actually, I had that um, last night. I played hockey, and the guy that runs the rink let us play extra long, so it was almost two hours long, and there was only one sub on each team. And I was so tired at the end that my legs were starting to collapse. And when I came home, I had a big, strong cup of tea, and I felt so relaxed but energized and focused at the same time. But I had that feeling, which is so rare where I just felt relaxed and energized and happy all at the same time how often do you feel that um yeah not that often um I would say I don't know I guess triathlon does give that to me so I'd say on the weekends I generally feel that my weekdays are just like crazy train busy um and I work train as in training or crazy train like Ozzy Osbourne (laughs) Ozzy Osbourne okay Um, so I um, am a staff photographer at a company I have my own photography business I'm constantly training I'm getting married I have an 11 year old Um, it's a lot so um, on the weekends I'd say on the weekends on Saturdays or or on Sundays even when I I don't have my son on Saturdays but I do on Sundays um, after a long workout when I'm just, I've just, I'm getting better at planning like my, my day up until 11, that's enough. I'm not doing anything the rest of the day. And, um, it's, then I feel that way. It's really nice to feel that. Um, how often do you feel a sense of peace? Even, even it, while there's turmoil, do you experience peace in the middle of a, a, a crisis, or is that something that's really difficult for, for you to be comfortable with unresolved problems? I think I do okay being comfortable with unresolved problems and feeling peace. I think that I feel less than the average person. I think a worse problem is sort of comfort in my own skin, if that okay. makes sense. Before you started getting help, on a scale from zero to 100, what would your anxiety and fear, etc., 100 being the worst, what would it have been at? 90, really high. And on an average day now, what would you say? 30 to 40. I have no idea what normal is, but um, you know, I was just telling someone this on the way here. I think... The thing that someone told me, and it was in program, that was the most helpful in coping with life, the way my brain addresses life on a day-to-day basis, was every time I freak out about something, ask, does that thing have today's date on it? Um, like, do, do I really have to worry about this problem that I'm, I've just spent two hours obsessing about this problem, and it's not in my face today, and it may never surface, you mm-hmm. know, never become a reality. And then you're letting it shit over the other things that could be positive in the day today, too. Exactly. You know. The opposite of The Power of Now. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great book, uh, The Power of Now. And an even better one, I think, is uh, A New Earth. I think that's a, just a profound, profound, life-changing um, book. Yeah, the thing I say to myself a lot of times is, will this matter in five years? And almost always the, the answer is no. Try to think of something five years ago that was super important that fucked you up today. Can you think of anything five years ago? No. 
but you can think of all those little like some little car accident or having your phone stolen or something that would have caused like hours and hours of Mm -hmm. of stress and turmoil that you don't know i think i think we have this like crazy fear that we have our lottery ticket out there somewhere and our car breaking down or losing our phone or not replying to a text in time or you know not getting the right job means that that lottery ticket that's meant to be for us is getting torn up you know what i mean that's interesting at least for me there's this this feeling sometimes that when somebody calls me or texts me or I get an email, this is going to be the one that breaks it wide open. You know, this is the one that, that you know, the podcast is going to double in listenership or, it, you know, whatever endeavor I was in, if I was acting, this is going to be an audition for a movie I'm going to get that's going to put me on the map. And it, it never was. It was it was it was always just some part of of life. But that. I think life gets more doable if if we can stop trying to swing for home runs thinking that that's safety is hitting a hitting a home run because most of life is just bunting and getting beaned in the head true i remember you know i thought somewhere in this you know period of time between being divorced and being almost remarried i remember thinking you know life was a struggle and life was like hard like i thought you know, I don't want this anymore. I can do life by myself, like way harder transition than I ever in a million years expected, way harder time in there. Um, But I was sure that if I could just meet someone, get married, buy a new house, like it would all be okay. That's all I needed was these like outside sources, like, guess what? Still, still the same person, still the same shit, have the house, going to be married um, in two weekends. And doesn't fix shit just changes the problem <laughs> just That's, changes the problems you man, know what until, I mean until you decide you're okay exactly as you are yep. you have enough you do enough and you are enough and truly believe that um which is not easy it's why we go to support groups three times a week and go to therapy and talk to people and try to be a service and all that other stuff and pray and meditate and exercise and mm-hmm. eat right yeah um we do get those glimpses though where we are okay just sitting having a coffee with a friend or um it is are you finding that the the older you get or i should say the longer you're in recovery the less it takes to bring you peace well it's very random like you just said it's like these weird moments where like i could be having coffee with a friend it's just like everything is okay or my boyfriend will say, how was your day today? And I'm just, I might say, it was just one of those days where like, just nothing stressed me out and it was all okay. Um, there's certain, swimming in the ocean always brings me that peace because you just feel like this little tiny little like dot on the surface and if a shark wanted to eat you, you'd be gone. That always brings me peace. And um, this is going to sound very kind of granola and silly, but um, very, very early, one of my first things I did in recovery because I'm an extremist and very black and white, um, I heard that there was a Zen center. I got into Buddhism. I heard there was a Zen center on the top of Mount Baldy and you can go there for seven days and do what's called a Sishin, which is like a you know Zen retreat of sorts. So I drove up there at like 20 or something. Everyone was there from like different countries for an entire session, like, a 
season or something. And I came for seven days and they taught me all these formal bows and gave me all these robes and we ate three times a day and it was very regimented. You didn't talk. Just like a 103-year-old Japanese man who gave you a koan every day. Like, gave, out of you, a, gave you a what? A koan, one of those, those riddles, like mm-hmm. a Japanese riddle, like what is the sound of silence? Mm-hmm. And... I don't really know what I was doing there other than I was the most uncomfortable I've ever been in my whole life and I couldn't get out of it. And every night I went to bed and I said, you can wake up in the morning and leave, but you have to sleep here. You'll make a decision in the morning. And I didn't really equate that with that one day at the time thing, but I really wanted to see what would happen if I stayed. And somewhere in there, I experienced this peace like I've never experienced before or since, sadly. And you were 20 at the time, 20. And, um, you don't, you don't talk. You literally, um, I didn't explain it well, but besides three meals, you meditate. I think they wake you up at four in the morning or four 20. Um, get high. (laughs) Right, right, right. And I then didn't he, follow and then for a second. With, then he hits you with the <laughs> riddle, which is terrible timing. No, but if you slump during meditation, they hit you with a stick to wake you up. But you meditate, and then you visit the, um, I, I can't remember what he's called, the Roshi, mm-hmm. to get your koan. But you meditate all day, literally waking up at 4 and going to bed at 10 at night. So you're exhausted. Um, you eat very little food. You're sort of sleep deprived. So maybe it's not real, but I experienced the deepest peace I've ever felt in my life. Can you describe the peace? Or does it go beyond words? <laughs> it was like what you said. It was just kind of this really deep sense of everything is okay. I'm okay. And I remember thinking, I've got the secret to life. I'm okay now. And... I drove down. Oh, and I mean, we ate like like beans and stewed vegetables. And I drove down that mountain. And first I wanted to go to Whole Foods and get like a turkey and goat cheese sandwich. And then my brain just filled with garbage. And then I was just like that fast, just back into like obsessive, crazy, scatterbrain, totally lost it. And I remember much later talking to a sponsor about that and your peace has to be sort of real life unless I want to be a Buddhist nun. Mm -hmm. I learned something up there and maybe that's just that if I'm able to balance my life correctly, I can feel that again in real life. Yeah. But, um, I have a, that's the distinct memory of the deepest peace I've ever felt. Any snapshots from your life before we, um, or any big pieces that were, were missing before we do some fears and loves there's any specific kind of chunks that you can think to ask but I think that's sort of the broad yeah we're good Uh, hit me with some fears I'll try to think of some too okay this was a cool exercise by the way I love like exercises maybe you could write a uh, workbook I know what I I wanted to to ask you um was there an answer to these riddles? You were, were you supposed to come up with an answer, <laughs> or was it just something for you to think about while you meditated? Uh, all of that. I think you are supposed to come up with an answer, but I just fell in the, I mean, achievement junkie one-on-one here, wanted an A-plus and a gold star, and I didn't even know what it meant. Hmm. And then I had to sit with him, like, 10 minutes for the next seven days and have him, like, kind of mumble in Japanese. I just, it was very frustrating. Wow. I did not get an A or a gold star. 
no idea what mine was either. Um, so let's see. I'm reading this list quickly. Um, oh, I, this is a... Which one am I going to pick? This one, this one's a, a core one that I that I don't have um, long term relationship capacity, and that my partner will just get sick of my shit. That's something you talked about, but mm-hmm. you know that I can't work on my shit fast enough for my partner not to not to bail. Which is interesting, actually, because the first partner certainly didn't um, bail because of that. Um, and the next one is just that I'll never be able to really tolerate life. That's kind of those two. I just, I want to be able to just kind of ride with life mm-hmm. and have it get a little easier. That you'll always be fighting it. That feel, I'll always. Feeling like you're losing. Yes. Um, one of my core fears is that um, my life will be forgettable. And I will only realize it like a week before I die. Like, oh, I should have done that. That's where... That's where I could have really, you know, that's what I was really supposed to to do. But I was too lazy or dumb to see that that I missed an opportunity. I have that one. Yeah. I, I would. That's a that's a really good one. Just that, like, my life's work is not. It's just meh. Satisfying. My whole life that, is just a meh. Yeah, that's a scary one. Yeah, but yours isn't. Let's just put that out there. I'm sure a million people. I mean, you're you're helping so many people day by day. Well, I, I I appreciate that, but you know that fear that fear was tattooed in me as a child, and as you know, you can do all the things you want, but achieving things isn't going to erase that. That's true. It's sometimes just. crying on the floor having snot come out of your nose and calling a friend and laughing about it that that seems to be the moments that make me feel like maybe that's not true that i that i do matter and my life isn't isn't forgettable but i do get a, a great to touch on what you said i do get a great sense of uh, peace and purpose from from doing the the podcast but it's a battle that's a battle Thank you for sharing that, just so I feel really scared about that one. You having that own thing? <laughs> No, that fear. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah. I didn't write that one down. Yeah. <laughs> Working on that one. Give me another one. Okay. Um, I have a deep fear of not being able to, to really make it on my own because it, you know, sort of is happening again that here I am getting married again without... You know, I'm very happy to be getting married, but it, you know, would have been interesting to see if I could have really made it on my own. What's the longest you've ever gone without being in a relationship? Um, a year or so. I, I mean, that's that's not like. Did you have your child then, with you? When I when uh, when you had that year without being in a relationship. Yeah, and I'm talking like adult life, like not, I mean, early on, like, I'm certainly not a relationship junkie. I'm more of a break up with someone and say I'm going to be alone forever and take like a long break, like, kind of person. But um, there is a strong um, sort of, uh, 
I'm fiercely independent when it comes to my time and what I choose to do and leave me alone. But it, when it comes to like, um, like, I think a lot of kids that are so grown up, spoiled and with money end up just really financially like dependent because they don't want to have to struggle. You know, I don't want to be a starving artist or any, you know, anything like that. I want to be like comfortable. We certainly don't have a ton of money or anything, but, um, really being able to just stand on my own two feet, not need anyone buy a house by myself. Like, um, I have not done the work to erase that fear. I see. Um, I'm afraid that I'm never going to <laughs> I'm never going to be a vegetarian or vegan and when I die I will pay I will pay in some afterlife um for being um a meat eater I will e- either be faced with the I don't know it just it's kind of an amorphous just I'll be in meat eater hell where we get payback for enslaving the animal population have you watched forks over knives i can't bring myself to watch that it's a pretty good one it made me want to be vegan i'm not but but it made me want to yeah the end of um was it fast food nation now what was the one where they show the cattle being slaughtered at the end food Uh, inc food inc um that was I just got down on the on the ground and I just cried and I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then the next day I had a pastrami sandwich probably. Yeah. That's a fear of mine. That's a fear of mine. Um, I feel like you didn't go deep enough with the ones that I, that I wrote down. Well, I I'll, think they were pretty deep. I, I do. I lose sleep over... Um, this is a real fear. I lose sleep over losing um, my clients' files. Like when I shoot a job that I, I live in panic of like a hard drive being destroyed or I mean, that is a like legit sense of uh, anxiety. Um, but the one the one you started off with, which is one I didn't write down is. You know, that makes me really sad about my eating disorder that I think I've really um, lost so much time and because of sort of my dependency issues and um, just what I talked about with just going immediately back to grad school so that my dad would pay for it, I do feel like I really, I have not found my kind of my life's work and um that i don't know if it's a fear of you know i don't need to i'm not someone who needs a claim or needs to be important Mm. per se but just that what that i i have this like kind of hole inside me of this there's something i haven't a professional hole inside of you not even professional more of a service hole that there was something i was supposed to give and haven't yet you know my my feeling is if you're aware of that, you'll find it because you're seeking. And as you know from being in a support group, seeking is the most important thing. Right. Just by the act of, of seeking, we often are met halfway by that whatever force in the universe that 
is good for us. Right. Um, I think about half of the work I do, like the work, um, the photography work that I sort of least enjoy, um, you know, people do, I do get, you know, these emails and notes and cards and, you know, how much people appreciated it and how much... Um, what kind of photography is it? I, I really do everything, but when I do, like, families and things, you know, mm-hmm. these people really just... You captured my, my kids so amazingly, and this is, like, you know, you you know stop time on our family, and people really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And once in a while that feels satisfying, but... Um, that's the only aspect of it is. And there's a... You I want w- more of that? It, m- some sort of more service contributing in a bigger, more important way. You know, I, th- I think the more we get to know ourselves, the more potential there is to find out what is the best for fit for us. Um, and I think so many of us, myself included, could only view what I was going to do for a living from what stroked my ego the most and what would bring me the most material satisfaction. And uh, the second support group I got into completely changed how I felt about that. And I learned how to become vulnerable. And then that kind of became the key to wanting to do what I do on this one if i hadn't discovered how awesome intimacy and vulnerability are there i would never have ventured to do this podcast and it's the only thing i'm doing now for for a living but i love doing it so it's like i had to do that work for that for that door to open and i don't know i just have the feeling when we go deeper into ourselves you know not in a navel gazing way but in a you know how can i become a person with more integrity and more loving and compassionate and open. Um, I don't know if things just seem to meet us, meet us halfway. Maybe they're all around us already and we just suddenly see them. I don't know. Uh, that was pretty zen. There's a riddle for yeah, you. Right? Go fucking think about that and meditate for, for 15 hours. Quantum uh, physics. It just, just comes to you. Beans and veggies. Um, let's do some loves. Um, I, as much as I'm not religious, I'm a pretty spiritual person and, um, there's certain places I can go in nature where I can just stand up on top of a hill and just feel wind and in a normal day, I can't stand the wind, but I just, I feel the most connected kind of to the universe and the most at peace, mm-hmm. just standing on a hill, like wind and no people. I can think of a trail by my house. Um, I, and, and further, just love that feeling of when you actually feel connected, mm-hmm. you know? I love the sound of perfect silence in the winter in the mountains above the tree line. Because all, all of nature is asleep at that moment. And when there's no wind, it's perfectly silent. And it, mm-hmm. it is the purest. It, it changes you physically, you know, during during that time. It's it's insane. And so insane is a terrible word for it. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Um, my son has this ritual that I love. Um I'm always running around the house like a wild maniac when I'm actually home. I have so much to do. Whenever I put him to bed at night, he insists on this 
I can't even remember what order it goes in because he runs the whole thing, but it's like kiss on the forehead, kiss on the other person's forehead, kiss on the lips, kiss on the lips. And it's funny how when I'm really rushing this ritual that has to be, can I can get like anxious about it. Like, oh God, here it comes on tonight. Like, can we just do a quick kiss? Mm-hmm. And it always just like fills me. He he makes me stop, which is which is cool. Love that. Because in that in that moment you see that oh this is a this is a human being with needs. This isn't just my son. Mm-hmm. This is a living, breathing person whose heart is open right in front of me. And that's what life is all about is those I know that sounds cliche, but it really is. He teaches me a lot about love because I can be decently kind of cold and he's very warm and loving. And that's, um, that's something I sort of hadn't put that together, but he really, every night when I have him makes me stop and kind of fill in that way. Sounds like a sweet kid in in touch with his needs. Uh, Very much so. Yeah. That's beautiful. And has good boundaries. I don't know where he's but yeah. That's like one of the greatest gifts that, that you can give your kid is an ability for them to realize that there are basic needs that all human beings have and that they are, are kind of our emotional skeleton, you know. I think that's the coolest thing about being a mom in recovery is to have a clue what the handbook to life is and actually be teaching some of that stuff. Yeah. Um. I love when I take my dogs out at night before I go to bed. So it's sometimes, you know, three in the morning when it's super quiet out and all you can hear are, you know, just the, I don't know, are there birds at that hour? But, and there's a little bit of dew on the grass and I take my socks off and I go and I sit in a chair in the middle of the lawn in the backyard and while they're doing their business I just feel the grass on the bottom of my feet and just the slight coolness of the of the wet grass and it just feels soothing and the and the little blades of grass underneath my feet it almost feels like a little like nature's giving me a little foot massage before I go to bed that's a good one I love when I'm really tired and I get in bed and I'm very much the opposite of you. I'm an early to bed person, but I have a little funny cat and he always, I get in bed, I put the covers over me and I like to sleep with the covers over my head, but he'll be up in about five seconds and he sort of like bats at my head so that I move the covers and he climbs in and he sort of cuddles in a circle, mm-hmm. right? Like at my belly level mm-hmm. and um, he, he just, I don't know, right there, just that kind of getting in bed, tired cat mm-hmm. little ritual. I had this moment this morning in in bed, well, this afternoon in bed. Um, it was about one o'clock and I was just waking up. And my dogs are usually attuned to when to when I, I get up. They can tell because I move around in the bed a little bit differently. And they both came up, one on one side of me. And I was on my back, one on the other side of me. And they both leaned their backs against my legs and I was scratching both of their bellies at the same time. And I felt yeah. like Ed- Edward scissor hands, but they were <laughs> dogs instead of uh, scissors for hands. Um, it was like they were both, it was like we, it was like they were both my arms that, you know, they were both That's attached funny. to my, to my arms. What kind of dogs are they? Oh, they're just uh, shelter mutts, Aww. but they're the really distinct personalities. They're, Those are the best they're, kind. They're the most grateful. Yeah. You open the front door and they're like, 
no, I'm going to stay here. I've been out there. I'm good. There's something about um, some of my angst takes itself like to be cold in relationships. Like when I'm really like full of angst, I can't give love, take love, but like it's okay with animals somehow. Yeah, they're so safe to love. Right. It's a safety thing, I guess. So it's yeah. really, it really helps me. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your life with us. And uh, it's always nice to have somebody on who's who's in support groups who can who can share um, that particular um, trip because it is a particular trip and it's so beautiful. And it's why I always get on my soapbox about them because I want everybody to experience the good ones, at least to experience the good support groups. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. So a little update on uh, Jenny R. In the two years since we recorded, uh, I sent her an email saying uh, that I was going to put her episode up, and she wrote, Shit, I guess I'm excited and nervous. I think I stalled out my personal work there for a while, so I think it will be a little sad to hear myself talk about a lot of the stuff that I'm still going through now and realize the lack of progress. I took a huge leap with the eating disorder and have been working with a top specialist in the area and paying through the nose but making huge strides and learning so much. He's a psychiatrist and PhD nutritionist, but he uses behavior modification rather than medication. I also worked with a neuroscientist, uh, Daria Pino Rose, who really helped me with habits and mindfulness and who I continue to talk to via email. I just finished my Ironman despite all this crap, and I'm training for a 50-mile ultra run in Bryce Canyon in June. Nature will always be my sanctuary, and the muddy trails are my playground this winter. Uh, As far as my second marriage, uh, it's full of so much more love and good times, but much harder difficulties and much bigger challenges. Relationships are hard, exclamation point. I've gotten nowhere with my hate and love polarity. I'd love to talk more with you about that. I feel a much bigger sense of commitment to him than my first husband because I have a sense of ownership uh, of ownership of uh, my issues. I know they will just follow me if I don't work them out here. Thank you for that. I love I love to what a what a great example that that is of the two steps forward, one step back of of recovery. And personal growth. It's so unrealistic to expect it to be a clear, linear, straightforward line that's never confusing. Um, let's give some love to our sponsor, Movement Watches. Uh, I like the story of how this company was started. Like a lot of good products out there, um, it was start. It was started by two broke college kids that saw that there was a need for uh, a beautiful, stylish watch that didn't cost uh, a ton of money. And uh, they they knew what they wanted, and they have created it. Uh, movement watches start at just 95 bucks. Uh, at a department store, you'd probably be looking at four to 500 bucks because um, they figured out that if you sell online, you're going to cut out the middleman and uh, the retail markup. And so you uh, you get a decent price on a, on a watch that would otherwise cost so much more money. Um, it's a really cool design. It's very classic. It's minimalist, um, really good construction. 
they've sold over a half a million watches in 160 countries. Um, I, I, uh, have one of their watches and, uh, I have gotten just great compliments from, from friends. One said, Oh my God, that thing looks like a piece of art. Uh, another friend of mine who is an artist said, uh, that he, Absolutely loves the contrasting colors and the the overall look to it. Um, that has a really clean design. So uh, check it out, man. Get fifteen percent off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmtwatches.com/mental. It's time to step up your watch game. Go to mvmtwatches.com/mental. Join the movement. I want to also give some some love to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, for those of you that don't know, is a search engine for finding and posting jobs. Um, If you want to find the perfect person for a job, uh, wouldn't it make sense to post your job on all of the top job sites? Well, you can with ZipRecruiter. They have... uh, 9 million resumes that you can search through in their database. You can add uh, multiple people to your account to make it the most efficient for your team to find the best hire. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. You just post it once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. If you have any issues, ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff is ready to help. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. It's been featured on Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, New York Times, TechCrunch, and CBS. ZipRecruiter's website also shows trending career fields, cities, and searches. So, right now, you guys can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. Let's do it a third time. ZipRecruiter.com slash first. All right. I Nice, nice batch of um, happy moments and awfulsome moments. You guys know that those are, those are like Christmas uh, to me. And I think I said maybe a couple episodes ago, would you guys please take more, fill those out more? Because we always need that like that, the 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 lightness or the laughter um at least i feel like it it does because i don't want the podcast to be uh two two hours of unrelenting darkness uh which by the way was the name of my first goth uh cover band this is a happy moment filled out by glenn ree and she writes when i was young around eight or nine warm sunday afternoons are spent at the racetrack uh, where my uncle and father raced uh, radio-controlled cars. I said this was a happy moment, right? Yeah. My job was to stand in the middle of the track on a dirt mound and flip the cars when they landed on their backs. I took too much pride in my job. Oh, I took much pride in my job, and whenever I looked at my father, he'd give me a thumbs up. On my break, I'd go across the street to the animal, shel- animal shelter where I'd feed hay to the horses through a chain-linked fence. My uncle would always have to call me back once my break was over, yelling, come on, kid, duty calls. And I'd run back, loving how good it felt to be needed. 
I love it. Thank you for that. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Mora Larling. And I'm just going to read part of it. He is... No, I'm going to read the whole thing. What do you think of that? How's that grab you? Is that a deal breaker? Do, you, do we need to get back to the negotiating table? Uh, you're going to counter with uh, half a survey and we'll agree on three quarters of a survey. Our lawyers will sign the papers and then to fuck you over, I will read the whole survey and dare you to sue me. And uh, you will. But then I'll keep delaying the court case by filing uh, motions. And then eventually I'll be like... 98 when it does finally come around, but then I'll be like, uh, you know, one of those Weasley guys that fakes a heart attack so that the court case can't go on, and then uh, and then I'll die in the hospital, and I will have won. Continuing. He is... Uh, he's 16, he's gay, he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, is being raised in a pretty dysfunctional uh, environment, never been sexually abused, but he has been physically and emotionally abused. My parents have, throughout my whole life, compared me to my older siblings. They would oftentimes tell me how much of a disappointment I am and tell me how much better my siblings are and tell me how shameful me being obese is. At school, teachers kept telling my parents that I'm gifted, and then my parents have since, uh, since, have since, since, I think he put in, accidentally put two senses in there, have since then continued telling me how pathetic I am, that I would get all this, quote, talent and still be such a worthless human being. I've also been used many times by friends throughout my life to make me look awful and therefore boosting their self-esteem. Not sure if this counts, though. I, I, no, those are both. Uh, emotional abuse. Um, darkest secrets. Uh, well, most of me is a secret. I do a lot of work to hide my true self from others and try very hard to always be joking and smiling, even when all I can think about is slitting my wrists. Oh, buddy, I just want to hug you. There are multiple dark secrets people don't know about me. But if I had to choose one, I would probably choose that I have and still manipulate people to do awful things, and I feel really bad about it, but struggle to stop. It's secret that I'm gay, not Christian, not happy, needy as hell, cry multiple times a day, self-sabotage, and many more. Well, you know, I just want to say, you, you have been raised in, in an emotionally abusive invalidating, mind-fucked pressure cooker, and on top of it, you're having to hide your sexuality, um, my God, who who wouldn't have issues? Who wouldn't be stressing out? Who wouldn't be trying to find uh, power wherever they could grab it? And that's not to, to co-sign what it is that you're doing. It's to, you know, to give you a hug and say, okay, now you're aware of that. What can you do to help with that? Where can you find help? But along the way, don't beat yourself up because, Christ, you're not getting any love at home. You might as well try to 
Try to love yourself. And I know that's easier said than done. Uh, uh, let's see. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? When I was 14, I was part of a concert uh, where I, as a guy, played Cinderella. I was very nervous and self-conscious before the show. And a girl who was four years older than me at the time and had been, I have the feeling she's probably still four years uh, older than you, and had been very friendly towards me uh, for the few weeks I knew her, uh, she was in charge of our scene, looked me straight in the eyes and told me that I can be the show stealer if I wanted to and that she knows I can, and then gave me a hug. In that moment, I felt so overwhelmed with genuine love, and it felt amazing. I felt like someone for once actually believed in me and loved me. And I went out on the stage, and the next day, everyone was complimenting me. I've never been able to talk to her about that. I can't work up the nerve. That is such a beautiful moment. That is... Uh, have you shared these things with others? No, I feel no intimate connection with my, quote, friends, since to them I'm basically a clown. I would never talk to my parents about anything like this, and there isn't anyone in my life I feel comfortable discussing this with. How do you feel after writing these things down? Shocked. Shocked at how good I have gotten at completely repressing so many things and emotions on a daily basis and never slipping up. I honestly don't understand how it's even possible. Guess it just takes a lot of practice. Um, I really hope for you that you can find your people when you're able to move out of your house and find the love and acceptance that is out there in the world, um, sadly, just not in your home and with the people that you interact with at school. But I, I really, that is a, that is not a pipe dream. That is doable. I'm sending you a big hug. Uh, speaking of uh, musicals, by the way, I thought I was going to hate La La Land and I really liked it. Um, which kind of confused me because I don't like musicals. I'm tired of Hollywood patting itself on the back. Um, but it, it brought up such nostalgic feelings for like musicals from the fifties and sixties and even the seventies. Um, and, uh, the, the actors in it are just great. Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, just they have such great chemistry. Uh, I don't know what made me go off on that, but this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Tomothy Conrad. Tomothy, I like that. Um, he's a teenager. He writes, I was in a fight with my mother when I was a teenager and we were shouting at each other and I said, I wish you had aborted me. She was taken aback, but not for the reason I thought. She looked at me and said, so did your dad tell you? This was how I found out my parents tried to abort me. Fuck. Dude, that is, that is Hall of Fame awfulsome. Uh, Mufasa shares in a shame and secrets, I'm sorry, a uh, struggle in a sentence survey about his depression. Drowning myself in dirty dishes and empty Chinese food containers because I can't get off the couch without experiencing separation anxiety. Well put. About his love addiction, our first date isn't until next week, but I'm already planning our wedding. 
about sexual bias, having all of my relatives refer to my past boyfriends as my friend or buddy because they don't want to acknowledge I'm gay. Uh, about having borderline personality disorder. I love you until I decide to hate you. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? I'd love to hear from men who have been diagnosed with BPD. Um, my few, first few therapists dismissed my concerns about possibly being borderline because I'm a man. That is, that is jaw-dropping. But there you have it. Um, it's, it's, Sometimes I, I have the urge to want to call out by name bad therapists and shame them. <laughs> that would not be that would not be good. Um, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Trauma Mama. And she writes, A few years ago, my dad had a stroke. It affected his speech, cognitive abilities, and balance in walking. He was no longer able to ski, which had been his life. Um... After a few weeks, he seemed to improve. At Thanksgiving, I was amazed at how much I could understand him, and he was even walking without a walker. By Christmas, I was telling people that I felt like I got my dad back. Um, let's see. Uh, he said, one day he said, Madonna was just on talking about the Woman's March. She's still the best, isn't she? And that's when I knew my dad really was back. See, he always used to call me and talk about Madonna or some other Hollywood gossip, kind of his way of mocking people who followed it, but also because he was a bit into it. It was always annoying and would make me roll my eyes and scoff, like, how did he always find the most inconvenient times to call? And yet this time, I felt annoyed and then so very thankful, like I hadn't realized how much I missed those annoying phone calls about Madonna. Kind of reminds me of the, the uh, you know, the first month that uh, I started living on my own here, and Ivy wasn't there with her bark, and which used to annoy the shit out of me. And man, that first month when I would do something that would normally make her bark, and she wasn't there to bark, I was like, "Fuck!" It feels so empty. Um. This is a happy moment filled out by Amanda, the cat lady. And she writes, I was really happy when, uh, about three days after my family got our new kitten, I finally had the chance one night to cuddle with her alone when I couldn't sleep due to insomnia. Having someone, albeit a furry someone, there with me during those lonely hours, it was one of the best feelings after knowing what it's like to spend that time alone. I didn't have to say a word to her. She was just there purring, happy I was there. The pressure of what are they thinking about me was gone, and I got to think, I got to just privately hang out with this adorable kitten. I've never had a pet before, and as someone who has extreme social anxiety, I think it's a shame my family didn't get one way earlier. I, I, I love, I love that, and that I, I didn't realize that as one of the reasons why I think so many of us love and feel safe around pets is, yeah. You don't ever think, oh, I wonder if they're judging me. You know, I I mean, even if they did judge you, what's like the worst thing they would think? Oh, my God, you're so stingy with treats. 
<laughs> I can't believe you beat yourself up for napping. There is, there is nothing, there is nothing like the just crawling into bed or laying down on the floor and just loving your dog or cat or muskrat or whatever you fucking weirdos pet. You like how I just turned on you? A nice little moment. Now, I pulled out my switchblade. I cut you. I'll cut a bitch. And speaking of bitch, this survey was filled out by Queen Bitch. Uh, she's trans female. She is uh, gay in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the vec- uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, my brother and I talked about sex, and he asked if he could fuck me. I said yes, because he'd caught me watching porn, and I wanted uh, him to keep quiet. He threatened to tell our mom about the porn a few times after that in order to get me to do sexual things. I was 11, and he was 13. I never said anything to anyone, and I forgave him, but sometimes I feel like I'm drowning in guilt. Not sure if this counts, but I also had a fucked-up relationship with my 35-year-old teacher at 14. Yes, that is. That's not a relationship. That's statutory rape. Uh, I'm ashamed to say that even though I'm gay, I'd fuck him if we met today. Almost dragged him into a bathroom after a funeral two years ago. It's disgusting. No, you're not, you're not disgusting. That is one of the ways that our brain copes with, um, that kind of trauma. So that is no reflection on you as a person. So stop beating yourself up about that. And please talk to someone about what you went through. Uh, any positive experience with these abusers? I have so many positive experiences with my brother. We're very good friends, and I forgave him a long time ago, but nothing can ever make him raping me go away, and I feel so guilty for hanging on to it. It is not your choice to hang on to it. That is there, because that is one of the things that trauma does. And so do not shame yourself for still having those feelings. Talk to somebody. There are tons of great ways to process trauma. Uh, Darkest thoughts. I'm a lesbian with OCD and my violent intrusive thoughts and fantasies about being raped by a gang of men never ceases. Darkest secrets. I'm addicted to benzos and I drink more and more. Today I had a mojito for breakfast before a psychiatrist appointment. Please, please, please get honest with somebody about your drinking because it will only get worse. Alcoholism and drug addiction are progressive uh, illnesses and they never, they never get better. Um, and mixing those two, benzos and alcohol, is really dangerous. And especially withdrawing um, off of benzos without the guidance of a doctor. Uh, you definitely want to if you've been taking a lot of benzos for a long time, please, please, please. Uh, sexual fantasies. I'm into rape kink, and I feel like absolute shit about it. Don't. That is not your choice, what you're turned on by. Um, have you shared these things with others? I haven't shared any of this because there's no one I trust with it. I feel ashamed of it, and I don't want anyone to know. I think we all know what holding that shame in feels like it feels safe but slowly man it just drags us down and so i urge you to find somebody somebody safe 
and sending you some love. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by, can I just go back to playing with Legos? And um, his issues are depression, ADD, anxiety, and drug addiction, and snapshot from his life. Um, Oh, no, what I wanted to read about this was a comment that he made. Um, He writes, sometimes I wish you would talk about addiction with the same sort of compassion that you use towards people who practice self-harm. I've done both for the same reason. I realize that some addicts are prone to exploiting, manipulating, and abusing other people, but some are just self-destructing in a way that's far more implosive than explosive. Thank you for that, because that really did kind of open my mind, um, and I realized that I think I am harder on addicts and alcoholics because I am one, and um, I guess I forget that um, that that may come across that 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 way is is not compassionate to um, people, but the place that I have difficulty having compassion for people is when they have an issue that they know is destructive, especially to other people, but they choose to not get help and they continue to hurt other people. And that's that's when I really struggle with it. But, you know, when somebody is seeking help um, for something and is admitting that what they're doing is destructive, um, or hurting other people or themselves. Um, it's so much easier for me to be compassionate, but uh, I am, you know, I'm human. I'm part cyborg, but there, there's a large part of me. Uh, there's a swath of human that runs through my motherboard. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by the friendliest, and uh, he's trans male. When I was 14, I was hospitalized after I attempted to take my own life. I spent a week in intensive care where I spent all my time asleep. I then spent a week in a psychiatric hospital. I was vegan at the time, so there wasn't really anything that the hospital served that I could eat. I was starving, and all I wanted was a peanut butter sandwich the way that my father made them. Initially, the hospital wouldn't let my father bring me a sandwich because he could hide something in it or something. After a couple of days of me not eating, however, they finally caved and said that he was allowed to bring me one sandwich a day. Those peanut butter sandwiches were probably the best-tasting things that I have ever eaten in my life. Thank you for sharing that. And I just want to share some gratitude for the support um, that that this podcast is given by people in the trans um, community. Um, uh, the gay community, uh, the trans community, the, I mean, suffice it to say, just the uh, non-binary, uh, I don't need to explain it. It just really, really touches me that you find comfort in the podcast because so often um, I feel like mm, like my ignorance is gonna is gonna show, and people are gonna you know abandon me. <laughs> it's so sad. It's so fucking oh. 
You know what's really nice, though, is when you stop fighting the fact that you're a mess. That That's like the day my, my life got better, when I went, you know what? I'm a mess. I'm trying to get better, but I'm a mess. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Mrs. Hyde, and she is 22, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse uh, and reported it. Uh, any positive experiences with the abusers? Um, she was. Uh, she, she writes, my mother had two different boyfriends who I thought loved me. The first one uh, was with a man who I'd known since I was three. The abuse started when I was 10. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I still love my mom and her refusal to talk about what she did makes me feel that I'm being too hard on her or exaggerating. Um, oh, and she's talking about the physical abuse uh, and emotional abuse that her mom did. She'd often lose her temper and threaten her with violence, calling her names like stupid, retarded, or curse words. Sometimes she'd hit me uh, in anger. Once half of my face was swollen and I was told to lie about it. Uh, darkest Secrets. I overdrafted on both credit cards and my checking account in order to help my mom after she gambled her money away. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my mom that I'm not going to give her any more of my hard-earned money to gamble. I blame her for me being in debt after I completed an enlistment, an enlistment in the Navy and worked my ass off to save money. I'm now back in a rural area living with her while uh, I'm as broke as I was when I left the Navy. Um I hate my life and I want to die sometimes. I can't re-enlist because of my current mental health. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared a bit with my girlfriend and she was understanding. She's encouraging me to get away from my mom. I would. I would listen to your girlfriend. And if you can't get away from your mom, because your mom, your mom has her hooks in you. And she has been playing you like a puppet since you were a little girl. Um... I can so clearly picture your mom portraying herself as the victim, as fragile, whatever she needs to get what it is that she wants out of you at that moment. Um, and two things I think to, to, that I want to say about this. Ask yourself, if you were in your mom's shoes, would you gamble all your money away and then think it was right to guilt your daughter? into giving you money, then why should you be any different than what should apply to anybody else? And the other thing is um, it's very easy. You, You said here, I blame her for me being in debt. You have a part in you being in debt because you lent her that money. You did not have to lend your mother money. Now, I understand that you are up against something that is huge. You are up against emotional uh, and mental manipulation by somebody who sounds masterful at it. And I only say that you have a part in this so that you can understand you have a choice. And if you find yourself unable to choose 
to not give her more money. Get help. Get help for it. That That is your responsibility to yourself and to people around you. I hope that... Uh, I hope that made sense in the tone that I'm, uh, that that I meant. A little tough love in there. You couldn't see, but I I, I actually started to take my belt off as I was, uh, as I was doing that, and then I realized I'm in my pajamas and they have uh, an elastic waistband. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by I'm depressed. Hi, depressed. I'm dad. Uh, she writes, I was having the worst panic attack of my life related to a lot of terrible, no good, very bad things happening during that time. My mom was yelling at me, blaming my shaking and sobbing and gasping and crying on me, not eating enough, uh, crying on me, not eating enough food. She was definitely projecting. She's borderline anorexic. She told me that if I was going to keep, quote, being like this, then she wasn't comfortable letting me go to college in the fall. Her anger made my symptoms worse, and she left me alone in the house, slamming the door behind her. I couldn't be alone. I called my grandma and incoherently blubbered to her, asking her to come over. She drove over immediately and didn't make me tell her what was wrong. She gave me a hug, made me toast, gave me a glass of water, calmed me down, and just stayed with me on my bed. I wasn't able to tell her about all the fucked up stuff going on in my life. I still struggle to talk about it, but it meant the world to me that she was willing to be there and love me and just stay there with me. It is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. It's so hard sometimes when we when we're uncomfortable seeing people in pain. It's so hard to just sit with them in their pain and not try to get them out of it. You know, some, sometimes just sitting and just in silence, holding their hand or sitting on the couch with them, laying your head, letting them lay their head in your lap, or just listening. This is filled out by It's Never Sunny in Rochester. Ah, I see what you did there. Um, And uh, she writes about her anxiety, a never-ending game of Pac-Man where I'm constantly getting chased by the ghosts and cannot let myself make a wrong turn and get captured. That is so, just so, so good. This is a happy moment filled out by Sonic Cat. Yesterday I was driving home from work when I saw a couple, a young couple walking. They seemed to be in middle school or high school based on how they were dressed. They gave each other that we just started dating hug and the girl started crossing the street. She looked back a few times to look at the boy, and he did the same as they were walking away. I have anxiety and thus take life too seriously. This transported my mind back to a time when things seemed simpler and made me smile the rest of the way home. I love simple moments like that, man. Because they remind me that there is... We can be connected to peace even in the middle of the chaos if we just try to get 
present. You know, that's, I think, why people talk about mindfulness so much and meditation and all that stuff, because it helps us practice the projecting into the future and the obsessing about the past and to just see all of the beautiful little things that we're missing every day because we got a furrowed brow and we're looking into our broken crystal ball positive that the image that we're looking at of 20 years from now is the truth of how it's going to be. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by unrequited depression. You guys are the best. She is uh, bisexual in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. And I just want to read part of it. Uh, She struggles with with drinking. um, And... She writes, I'd like to tell my fiancé I I really want to try and be healthier. I want to not drink, and I want him to stop for the most part. I can't bring it up because it doesn't feel like the right time. Will it ever? I don't think there is a better time than bringing this up, especially because you're about to get married. This is an issue that can absolutely ruin a marriage if it isn't brought to the surface and dealt with, um, I'd really recommend going to counseling and saying all the stuff that is really hard to say. Counseling is a great place to go if you are terrified of having a difficult conversation with somebody. Um, What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for the willpower to lead a healthier life. I wish for this year to be over because I've been using school as an excuse to drink, eat crap, etc. for the past three years. Hold on one second. How do you feel after writing these things down? Ashamed that I don't have the willpower to make even the smallest changes, regardless of how much therapy I have. Okay, so you have been to therapy. Um, and then she writes, you need help and you can't do it alone. This is this is uh, advice she give to somebody else who shares her thoughts or experiences. You need help and you can't do it alone. Don't expect yourself to make changes overnight and stop fucking binge drinking. It just makes you feel worse. And you mentioned that you, you're ashamed that you don't have the willpower to make even the smallest changes. If you are an addict or an alcoholic, there is no amount of willpower that will help you control your drinking. Um, So you need some type of help with with that. And you can burn your life to the ground living under the illusion that you can control that addiction. And that goes for tons of addictions. Um, Because it's not the drinking, it's the feelings underneath it that make us want to drink or get high or shoplift or whatever. And those have to be dealt with. You know, feelings feelings can't be processed by um, discipline. D- discipline is is not a processor of emotions. You know, discipline may be a program for living that works for some people, but um, it it alone is is not enough. I hope that made sense. No, you know what? 
I hope it confused you. Yeah. I hope right now you're scratching your head. Your eyes are even closed because you're like, what the, f- the fuck did he just say? And I, and I hope that it mystifies you your entire day and you get nothing done. And all you do is you think of me as you shake your fist into the air and say, God damn you, Gil Martin. This is an awful moment filled out by Elsie B. And she writes, once when I was about 15, the family cat got hold of a squirrel, as cats do. It was not quite a baby squirrel and not quite full grown. My mother rescued it when the cat dropped it from his mouth. It had only a few puncture wounds as it, and it was still breathing and alive. I went out with my friends that evening and came back later about 9 p.m. My mother was curled up on the couch. I gave it a bath, she said. On the kitchen counter, a bottle of shampoo for small rodents that she had bought at the pet store. I went to the shoebox where the squirrel was tucked in. I petted it with the back of my finger, and it was cold to the touch, quite dead. I looked through uh, the pass-through above the sink at my mother, curled and quiet on the couch. I knew that she knew that it was dead, but that she could not face the fact. She was waiting for me to take over. I took the squirrel and declared it dead and performed the quiet burial outside and cleaned up all of the traces of the makeshift squirrel hospital that had been set up there on the counter. I knew in that moment that my mother lacked an ability to face difficult emotions, and I learned for the first time that I was able to face them. I felt the sickness of death in the pit of my stomach, but I had the strength to do what needed to be done. I have always carried that ability through my life, and still today I face hard things, and my mother curls up on the couch and waits for me to handle her emotions. I disentangle myself string by string from the web and always hope that this will be the last time I have to be the one to declare the squirrel stone dead, but it never is. On that day, I felt more grown than my mother. I felt strong, and I still do. As much as I hate reading anything that has to do with a, with a dead animal, um, that was just so good I had to read that. That was Am I shuffling the papers enough? I sh- to, to be fair, I should let you guys know that I have um, employed a paper shuffling team to make these noises because I just felt like I wasn't able to make the amount of paper noises that a podcast should have. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Cat Cookie. And she's straight in her 20s. And I just want to read just one thing that she wrote um, to the question of, uh, have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? She, she writes, not sure. And then she writes, my boyfriend, when I was 16 or 17, took nude photos of me and then shared them online. I don't know if this really counts as emotional abuse. Not only is that straight up 
fucking emotional abuse. It is illegal. And it would be illegal, I think, I could be wrong, could be wrong, even if you weren't underage. Could be wrong about that. But definitely the fact that you were underage and and he posted those. Um, And again, like I say all the time on here, What's even more important is how you feel about it and that you talk to somebody safe about it. Um, yeah. You know, think, imagine, imagine if it was your daughter, your 16-year-old daughter, and her boyfriend posted naked pictures of her online. How would you view that? Would you view that as no big deal? No. You'd be fucking livid. And you would be able to see that that is abusive, violating. Um, This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by internalized twinkphobia. You guys never run out of great names. Um, they're bi-gender, bisexual, uh, teenager. Uh, I don't know why I'm reading all that because this is a a, uh, struggle in a sentence survey and I don't normally read all that stuff. About their OCD, if I draw this one line wrong, then I may as well give up on my art career. (laughs) So fantastic. Oh God, I used to get that feeling when I would woodwork. I would make, I would make a mistake and especially if it was like on a, expensive piece of wood and I would just feel it in my stomach like like I had deluded myself by the stuff that I had made previously that I thought was good like it just erased all of it Uh, about their PTSD my feelings don't matter because I can't remember the names of the many people who hurt me about their dissociative identity disorder Feeling like my head is a house with a cockpit. I don't even know what that means, but I wanted to read that because uh, it, I don't know, it just, I can't, I can't, uh, It's. I feel like on an emotional level, I understand it, but uh, intellectually, I'm not quite on. Un- I understand what you mean by that. Um, snapshot from their life. When I was in sixth grade, I befriended a girl in my lunch period through another friend. It turned out that this girl and I had been close friends since second grade. She showed photos of us hanging out along with me at two of her birthday parties. I couldn't recall anything. I asked my mother about it later that day, and she was confused as to how I forgot. I didn't press further and decided... It was mind gremlins that stole my time away. I can't imagine having dissociative identity disorder. The gaps in time, just on a logistical level, forget even just the emotional, interpersonal stuff, just on a logistical level, what that has got to be like. This is uh, an awfulsome moment filled out by Forever Awkward Female. And she writes, 
My father was an abusive alcoholic and drug addict. He was in and out of my life during my childhood. He was around just enough to break my spirit and crush me with his abandonment. Anyway, he left my family for good when I was 14 in a dramatic episode that involved fists, screaming, and shattered glass. When I was 25, I was randomly contacted to attend his 50th birthday party. My feelings were very mixed, but I thought if I didn't go, I would always wonder if I could have somehow formed a relationship or connected with my father in some real way. I'd done years of therapy at this point and felt strong enough to take a chance. My younger brother, also invited, was about 18 at the time and was even more affected by the abuse and abandonment than I was. We got there. My father couldn't even make eye contact or say anything more than small talk you know, one might have with a stranger at a grocery store. But the party was kicking. The bass was booming. He still loved a good party. After avoiding us, most of the evening, he suddenly appeared and pulled my brother and I to the dance floor. I realized right then that all the dreams I ever had of mattering to him and being daddy's little girl were just not ever going to be reality. The popular 90s song, "The Dip, by artist Freaky Nasty began to play. My young brother and I locked eyes for a moment. He had this knowing look that said, fuck it. And even though we'd not seen our father, the man who would strike us in the face with a closed fist when we were children, even though I hadn't seen him in 12 years, we caught the beat. We danced together in a small circle of three for the entire song, promptly followed with Tootsie Roll by 69 Boys. What can I say? My dad was a little hood and had his prime in the 90s. Although as a young girl, I dreamed of my father one day dancing elegantly with me on my wedding wedding day, I realized that however inappropriate it may be, this would have to do. We danced and danced hard. It was profound and totally fucking awfulsome. That, man, you painted a picture. Thank you for that. You would be a good guest, too, if you ever get to L.A. I haven't been contacted yet by the, um, in the Royce White episode, that was a live episode we did, there was um, a black woman who asked a question at the end, and she shared a little bit of her story, and then I talked to her also after the, the we finished recording, and I was like, I really, really want you to be uh, a guest. Um, and she was heading back to Chicago right then, um, so we couldn't, there wasn't time to go record tomorrow, uh, the next day, I mean. But I haven't heard from her since, and I don't know if she's bailed on the show or if she's still, I think her name was Jennifer, so if you're listening, Jennifer, I still want to record your story. Um, I feel like um, we we need more stories from people uh, of color, and um, there's a lot of topics I feel like we need um, more of, but that's one in particular that, um, anyway, continuing. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Jay, who is, um, she's bisexual, in her 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment, never been sexually abused. 
um, but she has been physically and emotionally abused. And the reason I wanted to read this one is I think it exemplifies so well how parents can have, how you can have really horrifying moments with parents and really sweet moments with the same parents. And what a fucking mind fuck that can be. I'd like to say fuck a third time. My mother was an alcoholic. I remember waking up one time to a hard slap on the back. She was trying to provoke my dad into hitting her and giving her a reason to call the cops on him. She was always getting drunk and my dad would always just leave. He left me and my sister in the house alone with our drunk mother and I don't know how to forgive him. My sister always hid in her room and locked the door, but I was stuck with my mom. Even if my sister would have invited me into her room, I wouldn't have gone. I was always afraid that my mother would kill herself and it would be my fault because I left her alone. One time she ran out in the street and tried to get hit by a car right in front of me. Oh, Jesus. I was around six or seven years old at the time. When I was a little older, our mom moved out. My sister became heavily addicted to drugs. She would throw things at me, hit me, grab me by the shirt and throw me against the wall. And worst of all, tell me after she was done abusing me that it was all a dream or made up in my head. I was around eight or nine. Uh, Then when I was 15, my sister had already moved away. I found my dad's drugs and all of his abusive behavior suddenly made sense. He would tell me I meant nothing to him and that I would never amount to anything because I didn't give him money for, quote, cigarettes. He once destroyed our entire apartment, throwing TVs and CDs and books. He also hit me a few times, but I honestly deserved it most of the time. I eventually moved out and now I'm living with my sister. She's grown up now and better, but I struggle trying to forgive her and my dad. I love them so much, but I have so much anger towards them. I don't talk to my mom. I'm not sure if I love her. It's uh, if sometimes I miss her. Any positive experiences with the abusers? There are so many. It makes it really hard to separate the abuse and the love. I used to carry around this clear plastic bead. I treated that little bead like a member of the family. I would read to it, carry it everywhere with me, even tuck it in at night. That bead meant the world to me. In the parentheses, I was a weirdo, I know. And when my dad made pancakes on Saturday mornings, he would make little tiny ones for my bead. He never batted an eye at my strange interests, not even when I brought a brick home and refused to bathe without it by my side. You know, I just had this image in my head that that is the love that you wanted that you deep down knew that you should be getting treated like the bead. And the closest that you could come to doing it was to do it for this bead that you had possession of. And it just breaks my heart. It just breaks my heart. Darkest Secrets. I can't stand my boyfriend. He's the sweetest nicest, most understanding person, but I push him away. I feel nothing towards him. I don't want to be with him, but I don't know how to tell him. I feel like an awful person because he deserves someone so much better than me. I just really want him to break up with me. I feel nothing for him, and I don't think I feel anything for anyone. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to read this is because 
that's really common for somebody whose trust has been shattered so badly by uh, not just one parent, but both parents. Um, of course, it's hard to, to be intimate with somebody, to let somebody in. Um, and I have the feeling it's not going to matter who the partner is until you start processing that hurt. Um, and I, I relate, I relate to, to the um, feeling of kind of feeling dead inside and um, and intimacy being scary. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would just want to tell my family that they did abuse me. I don't think they even realize. I just want them to know I want to die every day and I'm in pain. I'm just so sad and angry all the time and I'm sorry for the way I am. I really hope you share with somebody and I would definitely not start with sharing that with your family because they do not sound capable of owning their part in this thing and it's probably just going to make you angrier. I would start with safer people to share this with and they can probably help you when the time comes if you choose to confront your family how to say it, when to say it. Um, What, if anything, do you wish for? I want to treat people better. I can sometimes feel myself starting to act like an asshole, but I can't help myself. I can't stop. I want to be able to love people and have a connection with someone else. I'm so alone, and I'm just in my head all day. I hope you know how not alone you are. I hope you know how many of us feel or have felt like you do. And... The thing that therapists tell me is when we're kids, the dynamics that we see going on in front of us modeled by our parents, that is a script that we consciously or subconsciously learn. We learn that, you know, when somebody comes into the room and they're angry, that we don't know what's going to happen or somebody's going to get hurt or... If we, you know, act this way, that's going to happen. And we begin to believe that that script applies to the rest of the world outside of where we grew up. And the truth is, no. The script that the world has is often so different. And therapy and support groups help us learn a new script because we get to, we get to hang out with different cast members, cast members that don't drag us by the hair or... You know, these other things that, that happen to, to kids in childhood. And so then we, we get to react differently to life and not assume that everything is going to be overwhelming, disappointing, painful, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I would imagine that's why you feel dead around your boyfriend. And I'm not saying that you're, you know, this isn't over over with your boyfriend and 
that it that he's right for you, but the intimacy issue needs to be dealt with regardless. Um, I shouldn't say it needs to be dealt with. You would benefit from, from doing it because I don't want to try to tell anybody what to do. I'm pretty good at it, though. Um, so I really, really wish for you to process that childhood stuff because it is related to that feeling. I mean, your mom trained you to put her needs before yours. So, of course, you don't want to break your boyfriend's heart by breaking up with him. But guess what? He's a fucking adult. He's not your mom who was a child that you were brainwashed into protecting and caring for. This is a happy moment filled out by Lilac and uh, their agender. This happened just two days ago. I was skiing with my 72-year-old mother. It seems to be the only way we can spend time together where I feel safe around her. Since telling her that I have depression five years ago, she has never once asked me anything about how I'm feeling or how I'm doing. I also battle anxiety, which she knows but has denied for years. I don't know what has shifted, but two days ago she actually asked me about my triggers. I was gobsmacked, but joyful. I felt like she was finally trying to understand my struggle in her own small way. Sure, it took my whole life for her to show that she is listening, but we all start somewhere. I love that too, because that's like, it's 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 like your mom is, yeah, she's not going f- it, as fast as you'd like her to, but at least she's facing the right direction. At least for those two days, you know, she was facing the right direction. And um, I don't know about y- you, but sometimes I'll take a victory wherever wherever I can get it. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Richard Lambert. And he's straight in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. And I just wanted to read two things from this. Um, you ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, he writes, he's been emotionally abused, but he's not sure if this counts, um, the physical abuse. He writes, I don't really count the physical abuse. My dad hit me once when I was young. It didn't hurt, though, and he felt immediate guilt, guilt, which I leveraged. When my parents separated, I lived with my dad out of convenience. It was my mom who left, and so... Day in and day out, I would hear him say horrible things about her. He would try and get my siblings and I involved in their marital issues. Uh, I couldn't handle it, so I argued with him. That is just one of the... That is just such a... I don't know. I can't even find words to describe when when parents pit a child and use them as their pawn to get back at each other. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My dad is a difficult man, but he still shows his love in his own shitty way. He's been getting better about being an asshole, and some of what I shouted at him stuck. It's hard to blame him because he grew up in a household without love, only anger. And that's the other thing that, that I wanted to say about this is... This isn't about blame. 
this is about you no longer minimizing how much it hurt you. Not so that you can bring it to him and make him feel badly, but so that you can let the tears out. You can let the rage out. You can let all the other stuff that drives our accessory behaviors and makes our life, uh, degrades our life and makes it complicated and pushes people away and, you know, loses his jobs and all the other repercussions of uh, emotional, uh, emotional struggle. And um, so you can still love your dad and have compassion for your dad while also be screaming in therapy at the top of your lungs, fuck you, you fucking selfish motherfucker. I want to knock your teeth in. That That is not a betrayal of your father. That is you processing your own story. Just another head of worries uh, shares about her ADD. My brain is so stuffed with everything I need and want to do, but the idea of executing any of them seems exhausting and impossible. Oh my God, so true. That's the combo of, uh, for me of uh, like ADD and depression or anxiety and depression uh, about her OCD. Anything not in my control is simply a disaster waiting to happen. And if something bad happens that I am not in control of, surely I will find a way for it to be my fault. That's talent. I got to tell you, that is talent about her codependency. My parents have involved me so deeply in their problems and life troubles that my mere happiness hangs on the balance of how their day is going. I want to punch myself for being in my 30s and letting that be the case. I get it. That shit sticks with us. It sticks with us. It is so hard to unlearn wanting to save other people or wanting to change the mood of a room and it's fucking exhausting jenny from the block shares an awfulsome moment i recently went back to the school where i was sexually assaulted to talk about what happened i was so nervous i was in the counselor's office and i could feel myself dissociating as i talked about the attack she got up to phone someone and let out a huge fart in front of my face and said excuse me i burst out laughing I don't normally like to uh, read the fart ones, but that one is pretty. That's pretty hard. That's pretty hard to uh, pass up. That one. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Insouciant Struggle. I think I'm pronouncing that word right. It's French. I N S O U C I A N T. She's straight in her 30s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, I've never been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was very young, my biological father was very emotionally abusive. He would yell at me if I was scared, happy, sad, sick, and God forbid I ever show any anger. When I was around eight, I saw him watching me undress after taking a shower through the door of my bedroom. Yes, that right there is sexual abuse, and that is enough for child protective services if if they had proof of that 
that would be enough to either have you removed from the home or have your father removed uh, from the home. Um, he also used to stare at my chest as I was developing, which caused me to now have rounded shoulders as I tried uh, to hunch to hide my breasts. And he'd stare at my legs if I ever wore skirts or shorts, which I now never wear. He dragged me through the house by my hair and would say things like, are you practicing when I was eating a dill pickle and gave me a piece of paper that said birth control on it on one side and on the other it said keep firmly between knees. When he gave it to me, he said if I was ever to get pregnant, he would shoot me in the face with a shotgun. I was 10. He left when I was about 14, and I haven't seen him since. My mother was oblivious to all of this and has never said a word about it. I never told her anything because thanks to you sharing about the article by Dr. Alan Rappaport, the article is called Co-Narcissism, and everybody should read it. We've actually also done a mini-episode on the podcast where I read the article. It's very short because uh, it's only like maybe five pages. Uh, continuing, I realize that she's an incredible narcissist. Her passive-aggressive comments and behavior have kept me from telling her much of anything in my life. I'm on medication for anxiety and depression, but she refuses to seek help of any kind. When I divorced my husband, I was forced to move in with her and my young daughter, and it's been devastating for my mental well-being. I'm sorry if this seems all over the place. I've never spoken to anyone about it. I think that other things may have happened between my father and I, but I was so young that I'm just not sure. I feel like I may have blocked out memories from that time in my life. You're not all over the place because all of this stuff goes together, and it, it makes so much sense to me. Uh, she's been physically abused and obviously emotionally abused. Uh, she writes, I don't know if there's a connection, but I seem to attract narcissists. They've all told me I'm not good enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm to blame for everything around me. They shove me. I'm not confrontational. I don't yell. I work hard. I stay out of trouble. I'm only slightly overweight, so I'm not sure why they do that to me. Thankfully, I got rid of them and I'm now dating someone who is nothing but supportive and kind and doesn't have a passive-aggressive bone in his body, but I still don't know what to do about my mother. If you want my opinion, get the fuck away from her as soon as you can. Set boundaries with her, and when she breaks those boundaries, give her increasing consequences. First time, maybe it's a mild consequence, you hang up the phone. Uh, maybe the second time, it's you don't talk to her for a week. Maybe the third time, um, you don't see her for holidays or maybe ever again. But then the ball is in her court. If you if you don't state your boundaries with somebody who has no boundaries, it will never improve. And you will drive yourself crazy wishing for them to see the light because they, they're living in their own reality where their lack of boundaries makes sense to them uh, because they were probably raised in a similar environment. Darkest thoughts. Uh, I feel like sometimes I have these inappropriate fantasies about sleeping with much older men and daddy-daughter role play. I've never told anyone that, and I feel awful for these thoughts. Do you know how common that is, A, in general, but especially among incest survivors? Because what your father did is fucking incest. It's covert, but it is incest. Um... I've never told anyone. I feel awful. I also can't stop worrying that something horrible will happen to my daughter and it would be 
the end of me. I remind her all the time that she's in control of herself and to be open. I try to be the opposite of how I was raised and I'm so scared of her having even a single sad moment in her life. That is a huge red flag for you to get help because a huge mistake that parents can make is trying to be the opposite of what they had when they were raised, and then they wind up swinging too far the other way. Um, you know, for instance, parents that were raised in super repressive households will have no boundaries with their kids, you know, or parent, kids that were raised with no boundaries will, you know, be over-the-top disciplinarians. Um, but trying to protect your daughter from having a single sad moment in her life will be be perceived by her as you wanting to control everything about her. It will send her the subliminal message that certain emotions are okay and certain ones aren't. And that is a recipe for disaster in terms of emotional growth with your daughter and with your relationship with her. Now, I know I'm not a therapist, but I... um, look good in a tuxedo. But seriously, this is, um, I'm really serious about this because I don't know how old your your daughter is, but um, it's, it is not too late for you to change and for you to not want to try to control your daughter's experiences because um, you're coming from a good place, a good place. But the tool to do it needs to be upgraded or or replaced. So please don't interpret this as me telling you that you're a bad mother. It's just you need a different tool to express your love and support of her. Um, Darkest secrets. I've never spoken about the things with my father. I feel like I wouldn't be taken seriously or that it would be my fault somehow like I just imagined all these awful things. I had the exact same fear. And sometimes that voice still pops into my head. Calls me a baby, an exaggerator, you know, oh, you weren't, you know, actually your genitals weren't touched, so how dare you, you know, call it this or that. That's not what's important. What is important is that you were objectified and sexualized. And I know what that feels like. And it, it, scars you and you need to talk to somebody you need to talk to somebody you deserve to talk to somebody you deserve to be heard you deserve to be felt you deserve to feel peace in your life and it is there for you you are not you are not uh, beyond change but it does take work. It does take work. And walking through a lot of fear, but you can do it. You can definitely do it. I'm an artist, but keep forgetting how to draw uh, shares about their depression. Planning your suicide and your future at the same time in case one of them doesn't work out. That might be Hall of Fame. That might be Hall of Fame. I will let you know. Look for a trophy. 
to possibly arrive on your front porch. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a naked koala. Actually, this was an email that I got uh, from her. And she writes, um, Four years ago, I was admitted to a psychiatric ward for suicidal uh, idealizations. There, I underwent 10 rounds of electroconvulsive therapy, which most people know is shock therapy. About three weeks into that, I was struggling to remember my name and family and events, which is a side effect of ECT. I didn't want to do the ECT anymore. I wanted to go home. I wasn't allowed a phone in the ward, so I ran to the local shopping center where I called my husband and said I wasn't going back to the ward and could he come and collect me. Whilst I was waiting for him to collect me from the shopping center, I noticed a poster advertising that you could win a shop space with free rent for a month. I had, at the time, a small online store that wasn't really doing much, and I thought that I would enter the competition and see what came of it. I won. And four years on, my shop is still going and getting stronger and stronger and something I am quite proud of. P.S. I did go back to the psych ward and finish the treatment and would would recommend to anyone who is in my situation. And I'm told, I could be wrong, but I'm told that the, uh, the memory thing is not necessarily a permanent thing, that it can come back. But don't quote me on that. Maybe certain things don't come back, but other parts of memory do come back. (laughs) Why did I even open my mouth? Fucking jackass. This is a happy moment filled out by People Tell Me I'm Strong. And she writes, "Uh, My dad died eight days ago from pancreatic cancer. My mom died 15... Yeah, this is a happy moment. Bear with us. My mom died 15 months before that from brain cancer both completely awful and sad. That said, I've come to learn how to say what I need more easily the second time around. I'm single and knew knew it would be very hard to come to the visitation alone from my condo and then just meeting my family there. I texted a handful of my best friends a couple of days before and told them that I needed them to come to my house to be with me while I got ready, make sure I got out of the door on time, and just be with me. Three of my closest friends came over that morning, one by one, to love on me in my time of despair. When we got to the church, I asked one of them to hold my hand while we walked in. They hugged me and watched over me from a distance as I greeted family, friends, and funeral attendees during visitation and afterward. I know now that I can ask for what I need and that my friends will show up to help me as they can. I felt like I had soldiers standing beside and behind me that day. I am so grateful. That is one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. I I, I needed to hear that because I have really been struggling with asking for what I need. I shared with you guys that I have had my birthday couple of weeks ago and I didn't do anything on my birthday because I couldn't ask I couldn't it felt too uncomfortable too vulnerable for me to say would you please be with me I feel like I'm going to cry just saying that would you please be with me on my birthday 
It's such a simple thing. And it brings up such intense emotions in me, just thinking about being that vulnerable. You know, I like to think of myself as somebody that can get as vulnerable as anybody else. But this last birthday reminded me that I'm not. There are some things that I'm really afraid of. I'm afraid of looking needy. I'm afraid of being the person that wears people out. And I'm so inspired by what you did. And I'm so happy that you shared that with me. God, it is bringing up such intense emotions. It's funny, when I read these to myself as I put the surveys together to do the show, I never feel things as intensely as I do when I read them out loud to you guys. It's so interesting. Um, oh, that was the last one. <laughs> I didn't get to savor that. That was like the... Uh, that's like, you know, when you uh, George Carlin used to do a bit about how, uh, you know, when you you reach down for a, a cookie in the bag and you realize that you already ate the last cookie and you miss out on savoring the last cookie. That's what I feel like I did, not realizing that was the last survey. Um, thank you guys for your support. Thank you for... Um, those of you that are starting to either migrate from PayPal to Patreon or just signing up on Patreon um, to help support the show, um, uh, I'll put the links to all all of the stuff on the website to our links for our sponsor for the Oakland dates that are coming up in February um, for Patreon if you'd like to support the show that way. Um, And all the emails that you guys have sent uh, since I uh, split up with my wife, uh, or at least since I announced it um, in the beginning of January, it's I've been really, really touched by um, the love and the support. And um, I think I forget how... how much you you care about me. Um, I know you like the podcast, but sometimes I forget that that means you also care about me personally. And um, again, this is bringing up in really intense um, We're at 164 minutes. I really want to just do silence t- till the 180 mark. <laughs> just, just to see if you if you really do care about me. Because if you do care about me, you will sit through 15 more minutes of silence. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you're all talk. Maybe you're just full of shit like everybody here in Hollywood. 
fucking assholes. You build me up, then you tear me down. By the way, Herbert's butthole is doing very well. All right. Let's wrap this thing up. Let's get off this roller coaster. Let's get off this roller coaster of insight and incest. Oh, that should that should somehow be in the opening of the show. Oh. Why am I having a hard time saying goodbye? Because I don't want you to go. I have abandonment issues, even though you're not here right now. I haven't even posted this episode yet. Maybe because I like to hear myself talk. Maybe I'm afraid that I don't know the perfect ending, that my perfectionism is is kicking in, and I feel like, you know, I don't want to disappoint you in the last couple of seconds of the podcast. How, how about we wrap it up like this? You're not alone. Go fuck yourself. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.